2: On Saturday morning, I was watching Roadrunner on a box. That poor Coyote
3: Wiley, he's still taking his hard knocks. He still gets gadgets in the mail.
0: Well, welcome, welcome
4: Coyote to the Saturday session on SENZ. It's me, your host. Grant Elliott, and uh, I'm joined with our producer, normally producer extraordinaire, Ben Francis. We're in the hot seats. It wasn't a train smash last weekend, uh, so they've given us another go to really wreck the show in the first hour. (laughs) Um, We made a good fist of it last weekend, and we got a lot of treats coming up for you uh, today. Daniel McCarty obviously doing the football, uh, his true love of the round ball. He's doing the World Cup at the moment, so he's not with us for the first hour. So it's going to just be myself and Ben. And while some of you are enjoying the Saturday sesh, I'm sure it's a festive season. You'll be having a Friday, Saturday, and maybe even Sunday sesh during this time of the year. Um, I'm sure you will, Ben Francis.
3: Are you sure about
4: that? (laughs) Well, it's you know, it's the Christmas season, isn't it? There's a lot of those corporate events. I know I went to two this week. And they seem to be really stacking up at the moment. People are winding down here in Wellington. I don't know what it's like up there in Auckland. I'd say it's a little bit more festive in Auckland, wouldn't it be?
3: Well, I don't pay too much attention. For me, Christmas officially starts when the, when the Darts World Champs gets underway. That's when it truly begins for me.
4: Well, that's not, that's not entirely true, though, because we were talking about what's an acceptable time to put your Christmas tree up last weekend. And you were feverishly doing that at 2 a.m. before our yeah, show. Yeah,
3: against my will, Grant, that's the difference. Against my will.
4: <laughs> I didn't have a say in the matter. Well, my Christmas tree is going up this weekend, and uh, we do have a magical elf in the house as well called Sprinkles. And if you're a parent, you do have an elf, I feel pain. I do feel your pain out there. Um, because that elf magically has to do something special every morning and the kids go and feverishly look for it. Did you have an elf, uh, Ben Francis back in the day? I didn't.
3: No, I, I definitely did not. It's actually the first I've heard of, heard of this. So
4: great little commercial, um, uh, initiative that someone started called the elf in the shelf where the elf comes alive in the evening and does certain things in the house. So. There'll be parents uh, setting up their trees and organising the elf. Um, But it's also a great time for cricket. Uh, And what's coming up on the show uh, today, we're going to swing both ways. And that's our our Talking Cricket segment with myself and um, Ben Francis. And we'd also like to hear from you, the listeners. Um, We'd love to hear questions, uh, anything controversial that you may have during the week, your gripes, and positive. We do like positive stuff, even though Daniel McCarty's not here, who's normally half empty, and I am I try and provide that half full element to the show, uh, we'd love to hear from you, so uh, call up on 0800-150-811, or text us on double We've got um, Ewan McCabe at 12pm, uh, and we've also got our, uh, who's going to be talking FIFA World Cup. And we've also got our Saturday session legend, which is Shelley Kitchen. We normally have our sporting legend during the show and they provide a lot of insight into their lives, the sport they played, but also what's really become prevalent, uh, Ben, is I definitely think that when we speak to our legions, you hear about how passionate they are about their sport, how passionate they are, but also, you know that that was why they stuck to the sport. They've still got it in their blood, uh, no matter how old or young they are. They carry that with them, and it, it really is motivating to listen to the, the legends chat.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. It's always that common uh, denominator between everyone, and it, it's yeah, and and they all come back to the same thing: how about that passion, about that desire, and. Me, myself, of course, not being a professional athlete, it's almost like that's that little extra 10% that kind of separates them from the rest.
4: And you're a darts specialist. But, you know, I, when, I, when I was playing cricket, and I'm sure it's the same with you, darts, and those of you that are passionate about your sports. I watched the youngsters going to, to their cricket this morning, dropping them off and feverish to get out there. Some of them not so much, but I had um, I had this this flame inside me, and I don't know what it was. But I woke up and there was an absolute desire to be the best I could possibly be at cricket, and I can't explain where that came from. I don't know where it came from, but it was it became an obsession, a passion, to be the best. Uh, do you have the same with dots?
3: I, I do to an extent, uh, but I fo- I find it really tricky because for me. Uh, especially with darts for me the reason why I like darts is because it's such a mental sport and I don't have that mental edge and that I think that's what lets me down because I'm continually told by I'll, I'll go to my local club or I'll go play around clubs around Auckland and I'll get told you know you've got a really good throw you've got really good potential but it's my I have a mental block which I think is stopping me from kind of reaching that next bit and I've noticed especially this year uh my my game has gone up has increased it's getting better but i'm still lacking that that just that little mental edge where i kind of truly believe believe that when i when i go play i like to tell myself yeah i'm good i you know i have a good chance but for whatever reason it just doesn't happen so it's it's really working on that side of the game uh for me which would which i would say yeah is is where it, for me
4: it's it's quite broad though when you say mental edge because we spoke about the mental edge of the black caps that mental hurdle that they had when they're playing against australia which almost i guess didn't help them express themselves on the field but can you put it down is it an anxiety is it a fear of failure um what exactly is it
3: yeah i I could easily say it would be a fear of failure i'm one of these people that absolutely hates losing um i can get in a pretty I get in a pretty foul mood when when I lose uh, you know I, like lots of people do but I, I feel like it's probably it's probably down to you know you can with, with darts people say you can practice 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 as much as you like and uh, with my current situation, I can't go out and, and play at my local club much. And, you know, I've probably been, I would say, maybe five times this year. So then when I do get those opportunities to go, you almost lack that match sharpness. It's kind of like if you were playing cricket and you're in the nets and you're just smashing the ball, smashing the ball. But because you haven't played in a while, you just it's a bit different when you're actually out there doing it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Well, I think, you know, that mental capacity that we have or that mental aptitude that we have a lot of, uh, athletes tend to either live in the past or the future. And they always talk about, you know, taking it ball by ball, living in the moment, living in the present. And if we draw on our past experiences, um, sometimes we can have that fear of failure, which choke us up. Or if we live in the future, um, which is either a, a good future or poor future, we can either have overconfidence or fear of failure so fascinating to, to hear that and that, that's what we get from our legends we do hear about that mental side of the game and where everything sport on this session um but let's move to our headlines we've got a few headlines i mean the world cup has been what i've seen an absolute shambles been francis it's been some a lot of upsets
3: if, if that's your definition of shambles, but yeah, crikey, there's been lo- <laughs> lots of uh, lots of big results you know we've seen throughout this tournament, but uh, the, uh, there's plenty more this morning as uh, Uruguay were knocked out of the World Cup on goals scored despite beating Ghana uh, 2-0 after South Korea's dramatic win against Portugal. Uh, this, they played the final Group H matches today, and Uruguay thought they'd done enough in the first half when they scored a quick double. Uh, they were the first goals Uruguay had actually scored in the group stages and it proved to be pivotal to their World Cup exit with as with just minutes to play in both games uh, with South Korea, Portugal, Uruguay, Ghana. Uruguay uh, was second in the pool uh, but a late South Korean winner from Hee Chan Hwang Saw them overtake Uruguay in the standings, and essentially they got through. It was almost like a countback because they got through because they scored more goals, four to two, during the pool stages. So that's the whole reason why Uruguay missed out, and there were some pretty upset scenes uh, after that match. And they've just had the two games finish now, and uh, Switzerland have beaten Serbia three goals to two. And Cameroon actually beat Brazil uh, 1-0, but it wasn't enough for them to advance to the round of 16. So Brazil and Switzerland are uh, going through for uh, that was Group G. Uh, also, New Zealand will have another IndyCar driver to cheer on next season with Marcus Armstrong signing with Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, Armstrong will take part in the road and street courses alongside fellow New Zealander Scott Dixon, Marcus Ericsson and Alex Polo. And the Australian Golf Open is underway on Spark Sport. And a course uh, record equaling second round by Adam Scott has him tied for the lead at the halfway stage. The former world number one is eight under for the championship to be co leader with the Victorian uh, Daniel Michuzzuli, with Ryan Fox tied for 22nd. The ISPS Hunter Australian Open live December 1 to 4 on Spark Sport.
4: Yeah, we haven't had many uh, petrol heads phone in. Um, so if you are a petrol head and you want to um, provide any Formula One, I, uh, Formula Two, sorry, I'm the Formula One specialist uh, at ECNZ in the Saturday session. Um, but at the, after the break, we would love to hear um, from you either calling or texting in. So at 100 150 811 or text in on 8833. Uh, perhaps in this sad week, um, which we'll, we'll follow up on uh, around Murray-Halberg. Um, who is it, someone out there, that you, living or deceased sportsperson, that maybe you'd love to have dinner with? Um, I've already got a text on my Instagram. Someone said Colin de Grandholm. Um th- There wouldn't be a lot to speak about with Colin. <laughs> um, uh, but what a great man. He is one of one of the greatest men that I've played with. So after the break, let's hear from you. Time for um, you to phone in and listen to your views. Oh, interesting one. Yeah, yeah. There's been, there's been a couple that I've had um, just on my, my personal Instagram, obviously because I can't see the text today because we're out of studio. Danny McCarty's got the, the main studio um, being um, knee-deep in football at the moment. I've got Colin de Grandhome, Trent Bolt, and Sir Peter Blake. No. Um, is, is some that I've had. I'm not sure those will keep going while we talk. But it was, it was truly sad to hear the passing of one of New Zealand's greats this week. Um, New Zealand Athletics Legion, Sue Murray-Halberg, um, has passed this week at the age of nine, 89. Um, he's one of the country's greatest runners at a time that's probably still regarded as the golden era in New Zealand athletics. For a decade, uh, Sir Murray excelled as a world-class athlete on the international stage, memorably striking 5,000 meters gold at 1960 Rome Olympics, for those of the listeners that can remember that. Um, away from the track, he'll be remembered for his inspirational work in transforming the lives of children with a disability through sports as the founder of the Helberg Foundation, of which I've been involved helping out with that. It truly is a fantastic foundation. Uh, his athletics career began after he seriously injured himself playing rugby and the months of rehabilitation left him with a withered left arm. He was 17 and the disability made him a determined athlete, gave him lifelong interest in the needs of crippled children. His talent was nurtured by the great Arthur Lydiard, who um, he was the first great runner to emerge uh, from the Lydiard stable. He came to the national attention in 1954 when he won New Zealand Mile Championship and later that year ran competitively at the Vancouver Empire or Commonwealth Games. In that race, it was a bit part player in the drama of the Bannister Landy four-minute mile. But by 1958, he became a great runner. That year, he became the first New Zealander to break four minutes for the mile, won the gold medal for the three-mile race, Cardiff Commonwealth Games, and was named Sportsman of the Year. He set world records for the two, three mile and the mile relay, all in 1961 and won another Commonwealth Games gold medal in 62. Halberg set a string of records and won many titles over distances from 800 to 10,000 meters, but his finest moment came when he won the 5,000 meters at the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome. It was a golden double for the New Zealand runners. His Lydiard stablemate Peter Snell, had shortly before won the 800 meters. He went to the 64 Olympics in Tokyo, finished down the field in the 10,000 meters, and then turned to coaching. And a lot of his efforts um, were pointed towards Halbergs. and it was then that he created the events, um, which became known as the Helberg Awards in 92. Helberg always said his ultimate goal was for the Helberg Foundation to do itself out of the job. He said, Although we have helped thousands of disabled people over the years, we still have a long way to go before disabled people have the same opportunities to participate in sports and recreation and in society in general. No one ever exemplified the Olympic spirit of triumphing over adversity better than Sir Murray Halberg. May he rest in peace.
3: That was beautiful, Grant. Thank you very much for those touching touching words on sir murray uh he would definitely be a work a workhorse of 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 a lifetime nomination for sure not just a workhorse of the week
4: yeah i mean i think it's a time when you know a lot of people i guess reflect on someone's career but you you celebrate it you celebrate the career and you know we talk about giving back to the game the community game and I'm a, a huge fan and advocate of children playing as much sports as possible. I think we need to get them out of indoors, out of devices, uh, the skills that they learn from team sports and even listening to you Ben about, you know, the mental aspect of darts, you know, if you can if you can master those things in sport, well, it's gonna help you in the long run in, in life in and any job that you do or vocation. Um, the, the soft skills that you learn in sport can be transferred into any workplace. And, you know, Sue Murray being able to to give to um, disabled children's lives. And I've been involved in the Halberg Games. So that's normally around this time of the year. And uh, normally at King's College, where they have the disabled Olympic Games, I guess, for New Zealand. And, all these disabled kids, they told me, they said, right, you're going to run cricket." And I'm just letting you know that some, some of them are um, really partially sighted. Some of them are in wheelchairs. Good luck with the session. You're going to have to create a session. And I had to create a cricket session with all these disabilities and cater for the disabilities. Jeez, we, we had a lot of fun. I mean, I was pretty clueless at the start, but you, you kind of you, you get how difficult it could be. Having a disability and then trying to play sport in schools where there's just only one format of the game. But, you know, doing catches with someone in a wheelchair, that was interesting. And it was actually brilliant because these kids, they have got a no-fear um, of failure, zero fear of failure. They just want to try everything. And they want to or they've almost got a they want to prove to people that they can do anything that a, um, a fully abled person could do. And I had the one kid I was throwing high catches, and he was in a wheelchair. And he dived out of the wheelchair and he was on the ground. And I was like, Oh, my goodness, what have I done? And he's smiling and he was just leopard crawling back to the wheelchair I offered it to help. And he's like, No, I'm fine. Straight back in the wheelchair wanted another catch. So um, you know, what, what Sir Murray has done for uh, people with disabilities and um games is, is truly Fantastic for um, New Zealand and long may it continue.
3: Yeah, there are some more great words there, Grant. Uh, when you're talking about the, the wheelchair just last month while they had the Rugby League World Cup on, they also had the, the wheelchair Rugby League World Cup on as well. And... It was absolutely incredible seeing some of the things that some of these people were doing, uh, in, in wheelchairs. I don't think I got a lot of coverage here because I don't think New Zealand had a team over, uh, but it, you know some of the some of the tries that they were scoring, uh, they were better than the tries actually scored in, in the men's and the women's uh, Rugby League World Cup, and also quite interesting hearing you talk about trying to set up programs. Uh, quite a few years ago, I used to live in the in the mighty North, in the mighty Northland, and I spent a bit of time in, in Dargaville and uh, one day at the football club there they kind of hosted uh, like a special Olympic football day and they had quite a few teams around from the from the area coming and it was really cool seeing uh, those people come and come together and, and and giving it a go and it was it was really cool to be part of and they put together a, a team for, from the football club to, to play along as well and uh, we we played I, I was part of the team and in the first game we played we, we beat this team. I don't want to say handsomely because you don't you know, don't want to say that, but to see they ended up playing us in the final again, and to see how they bounce back, I think I think it was only one nil. There was only only one goal, and this was like a thirty minute game. Uh, and just to see like their determination, their effort, and it's it's fantastic, you know.
4: Yeah, we've sp- we've spoken about that. I think as a New Zealand fan, that's all you want to see. You just want to see the athletes giving their best, like showing that, that enthusiasm, but showing that they, they're they prepared to give everything they've possibly got. And win or lose, I think that that's always inspirational. And you saw from the, the way that they played the game with enthusiasm and authenticity and um, and passion. I think that, that that's what captivates the New Zealand fan. However, in this world of professionalism, I think sports people, um, and I've had that feeling when I've played sports, is you almost want to try and protect yourself from the public because there is scrutiny and there is a lot of people out there to, um, not ridicule, but pull you down at times. So, you know, the, our athletes tend to, to not be as authentic as we want them to be, but I think that that, if we can find that in New Zealand, that's how I'd want our children to grow up watching professional sports and, um, having sports people just express themselves. And speaking of that, I mean, who who is it that you would want to have dinner with, uh, Ben Francis? Have you thought about that?
3: Yeah, I've I've always got the same answer for this one, and it's a, it's an athlete, but it's not necessarily for the achievements that they made on the court. It's more to it's more about the person off the court, and it's kind of someone that you aspire to be like. And and when I was growing up, that was always Dwayne Wade, who uh, used to play for the Miami Heat. Uh, there was, I know there was always a lot made about his, uh, some of his, uh, off the court stuff, but he was a very, he was a very family, uh, focused and family orientated, uh, man. Uh, and I, I, always thought if I am like a father, that's how, that's how I want to be. I, I want to be the best I can be, uh away away from the workplace or whatever it was so that was always my inspiration as I say not for what he was doing on the court on the court what he what he was doing was absolutely incredible but it was more for the stuff off the court as well
4: yeah uh, well I have had some more texts um I've had uh anyone but Grant Elliott um uh, that was from our producer from Spike Sports so thank you very much for that Rob um, <laughs> uh, I've also had Tim southey Martin Crowe would be a good one. Mm. Martin Crowe, I was very fortunate to spend time with him. He was my Test batting coach. <laughs> I think I was a failed, uh, <laughs> a failed mentee there. Oh no! Um, for a while, I wanted to score ten Test hundreds then, and I averaged ten, so that didn't quite work out for me. Um, someone that I I was thinking about if I could have dinner with and I didn't know too much about him and I've mentioned him on this show before and that's Keith Miller do you know who
3: Keith Miller was Ben? Keith Miller, I do not know who Keith Miller is
4: Keith Miller was an Australian all-rounder he was absolutely, apparently amazing and you know, I I really had a lot of respect for my all-rounder and (laughs) do read that he averaged forty with and twenty two with the ball. He played under Bradman for the Invincibles. He told Bradman to go and F himself one day when he left a straight one versus Essex in nineteen forty because the now, for those of you who don't know, leaving a straight one is just being a straight so he obviously bought he bowled the speed of light with Ray Lindwall at the other end. He batted at five. He dated Princess Margaret. Ran a record His oh. four sons by his bed. Now, and he sounds like a great man. Someone spoke to him about Chris, and he said, "That's you know, there's no pressure in sports. Pressure is um, you know, a plane trying to shoot you down." Um, in World War II. So that was that would be my person to have dinner with. Um, and if you've got anyone interesting that you can think of, deceased or living, text it in, double eight double three or phone in 800 150 When we come back from the break, we've got our summer cricket segment with PGG Rights and Turf, Swinging Both Ways.
3: 27 minutes away from 11 here. You're on the Saturday session. Ben Francis filling in for Daniel McCarty to 11 o'clock. And as always, Grant Elliott alongside me. Uh, Now it's time for Swinging Both Ways, thanks to PG Wrightson. PG Wrightson Turf Key Suppliers New Zealand Cricket Grounds. And Grant, we're starting off. Very simple. What about those white ferns, eh?
4: Oh, if you had the uh, joy of watching that, I mean, If there was ever a dominant performance, well, that was it. New Zealand batted first, and it was an absolute uh, spectacle. Uh, Obviously, playing against Bangladesh, they're weak. We know they're weak. But I think the White Ferns have got a lot lot of points to prove, um, especially with the batting order and the way that they structure their batting order. Sophie Devine opened with Susie Bates. I guess that was the probably the only thing on the night that didn't go well is that no one went on and scored a big one. Uh, Sophie Devine 45, Susie Bates 41, opening partnership of 84, and then Amelia Kerr, Maddie Green, and Leah who finished the innings off to get 164 for three. They spoke about you know the coach saying that he wanted over 160. Well, they got that, and uh, Bangladesh uh, were put in and. They batted 14 and a half overs, but unfortunately, they could only manage 32 runs, and um, the plaudits there went to Leah Tahu, who got four wickets, uh, bowled magnificently, but I thought Hattie Jensen may have even been pick of the bowlers, a lot of movement through the air, she got three wickets, Fran Jonas, the young uh, left arm tweaker, uh, two wickets for her, but um, you'd have to say four for six or four overs for Leah Tahuhu, and had a, dr- a catch dropped by Maddie Green, who was a replacement keeper, for a five-wicket haul. It was an absolute clangor. Um, but she was she would be disappointed with not getting five, but ecstatic that in front of her home crowd she got four for six or four overs. And even more fascinating that she's obviously been left off the contract list at the start of the season. So uh, really nice to see her back in form, and I think. Just watch the White Ferns. Um, I will be commentating some of those games, but watch the 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 difference in um, batting orders and see if they that the structure that they use and combinations that they use because I think that that's where they've fallen over in the past.
3: And uh, just some quick news out of the White Ferns. Uh, White Ferns batter Brooke Halliday has been ruled out of the remainder of the Bangladesh series with a hand injury, and they have called in. Uh, Rebecca Burns uh, for the remaining two T20s uh in that squad. Uh and moving on now Grant, uh Black Caps heading to Pakistan uh later on this month. And at the moment Pakistan are uh, playing England and uh I it's safe to say it's just holy hecker. England 657 all out. Uh, They had one, two, three, four players with centuries, and they scored those 657 runs and 101 overs. Pakistan at the end of day two, 181 without loss. This is just a run fest. (laughs) It's
4: an absolute run fest. The lowest uh, strike rate for England um, with anyone that faced over 40 balls was 74, and that was Joe Root. He was the only one in the top five to miss out. Joe Root got 23. It went Crawley, 122 off 111. Ben Duckett, 107 off 110. Ollie Pope, 108 off 104. And then Joe Root missed out. He got 23. And then Harry Brook came in and got 153 off 116. He also managed to hit uh, one of the spinners for six fours in a row. So... All records were broken on their first day, and what was even um, more amazing about that is that they didn't even bat their full 90 overs. They were cut short by 15 overs uh, because of uh, uh, light, bad light stopped play. So 500-plus runs were on the opening day, and this is the, these are all firsts, the first time in Test history, and it was the first day in Rawalpindi. So 500 runs were scored in an opening day, and there were 15 overs short four batters scored 100 on the opening day, three batters scored 100 off less than 100 balls in the same innings. One of the England batters, which was Harry Brook, had six fours off and over, and an England keeper batter scored 100 off less than 100 balls, which was Ollie Pope. So uh, huge uh, records broken. And obviously, Uh, all due to the fact that we've got a Kiwi coaching the team, Brendan McCallum
3: Yeah, a bit of ball going (laughs) on and this is something that we were going to discuss anyway but Steve from Tauranga has uh, texted through and this could be in a bit of a similar relation as well to New Zealand rugby with lots of people saying that why do we let our best coaches go overseas instead of keeping them here Uh, Steve has made uh, one point about Baz and Stokes changing test cricket, but we just want to focus on the second part where he says, are New Zealand losing their top coaches in cricket to other countries too much? With McCullum, Patel, with England, we have Daniel Vittori with the Aussie team at the moment. Uh, I think you mentioned a couple of others as well whose names just elude me, but uh, what is the deal with keeping our coaches here?
4: Yeah, it's a good question from Steve in Taronga. Um You know... I look at our coaches and just off the top of my head, you know, you've got Brendan McCullum who's coaching England and you've got Cheaton Patel who's uh, the spin bowling coach for England. Then Daniel Vittori, who I believe is the assistant coach in Australia. Uh, Stephen Fleming, IPL. Mike Hessen, Royal Challengers Bangalore, director of coaching. Uh, James Franklin I know is in the T10. Um The pathway in new zealand you've only got six major associations and of those six major associations is six top jobs top coaching jobs assistant coaching job i'd say probably um it, it is getting up there in terms of pay but let's say that leaves 12 genuine coaching opportunities in in new zealand so i guess a lot of them are looking overseas but i think what we need to do is we need to have a look at um it's difficult to find a coach to commit for the whole year uh, even Brendan McCallum, he's a test batting coach, mm. but is given, you know, salary times five um, compared to the coaches we have here. I think the only way that you can attract really good coaches in this day and age is by splitting the coaching. Um, and, and what I mean is by splitting that according to formats. So you've got your test batting coaching uh, team, and then you've uh, which allows them to then potentially go and do some of the T20s around the world if they want to. And then you've got your one-days and your T20s, and maybe that can be a mixture. I think the one constant that you need is probably your director of coaching, uh, and that's someone that needs to almost be uh, um, your head coach or your manager, your football manager in a way. Um, And then below that, you have a head coach for each format. That way you might be able to um, not only get to a salary that is attractive for someone, but also they're not. Stopping their whole life to coach international cricket, which is generally what happens. These coaches, they're in it for three years and they're traveling the world when they can do a T20 team um, and get paid probably twice as much for um, a quarter of the time during the year. So very difficult to keep our coaches here. But how can we get those coaches involved um, in the different formats? And you look at Fleming. Uh, Vittori, uh, Brendan McCullum, and Mike hesson they've all got experience in T20 cricket. How can we get that intellectual property into our T20 team, who we know we do well, we're like top four team, but we're not the best in the world. Uh, you look at that England team, what are they doing that is making them exceptional at the moment, uh, not only in their pathways, but maybe in the coaching side of it. So um, yeah, good question from Steve there.
3: Very interesting about all the coaches and... Uh, as we touched on before, of course, the Black Caps heading to Pakistan later this month. Lots has been made about the pitch that they're playing on and whether that's going to be a similar pitch to what the Black Caps could be facing as well. But then it also comes down to, I believe the cricket balls, because they're using is it, they're using different kind of cricket balls here as they're using the Kookaburra cricket balls, which can be a little bit different to the, some of the other ones that they use.
4: Yeah, no, you absolutely nailed it. So... um it's not only the pitch, but it's more the, the ball that they're using as well. So when you use the kookaburra cricket ball, it's a softer ball. It's not a, as pronounced with the seam. And sometimes you'll hear the commentators talk about the difference between the Duke and the kookaburra in England. They use the Duke because the conditions are sometimes a little bit more moist. So because it's a little bit damper, um, the, it's, the ball has a lacquer on it. So the leather's a little bit harder. The seam is more pronounced, which means that when someone like Cheaton Patel, when he came to New Zealand, he didn't spin the ball as much on New Zealand wickets, but went to England and he had the Duke ball, pronounced seam, softer sort of conditions, and used to rip it up. He was one of the um, Wisdom's top uh, cricketers of the decade because of that, and got so many wickets in England. But it also swings through the air a lot. So... I'm surprised they're using the kookaburra because I know that when they did use a kookaburra at one stage, and this is going back a long time ago, this is going back in the 2000, 2001, they trialed the kookaburra in Pakistan and there was a batter who made the test team called Wajahatula Wasti. And I know that because I played against him in Ireland. I was in the leagues in Ireland. And Wajahatula Wasti got 900s in a row. Ooh. And they were just pumping out hundreds the the pakistan batters because they were using the kookaburra ball what the kookaburra ball does do is it reverse swings so they'll be looking for reverse swing early on i turned on the tv last night and uh leach was bowling already so the fact that he was bowling it was a second over it tells you a lot about how they think the pace bowlers are going to be going uh i think they'll be doing a lot of the graveyard shift um in in pakistan and New Zealand need to look at that and go, right? Okay, well, how can we balance our team now? Because they do need to to send out a balanced team. You think about our spinners. Ajaz Patel is one of them. Who's the other spinner that we're going to take? We will need two spinners, or is it a all-rounding uh, all-rounder spinner that we played Michael Bracewell in England? So it'd be very interesting to see the makeup of the team, and also maybe Pakistan, who are New to Test match cricket ever since, um, obviously, uh, teams have started touring there again. So interesting to see how they change that pitch because no one wants to watch Test cricket like this. So It might end up being an interesting game. Who knows? But at the moment, you've got Pakistan who are 100 and, from memory, 81. Uh, yeah, 181 uh, without loss. And Abdullah Shafiq and Imam al they are there both on, 89 and 90 respectively so not going as quick um, as the England batters were but um, yeah you'd look at that and you go wow okay well there was um, more than 800 runs in two days and they were cut short probably by about 30 overs in the second day due to bad light.
3: I did hear uh, from a very reliable source that Ish Shodi is uh, working pretty hard to get back in that test team as well. Uh, Sounds like he's pretty confident and it sounds like there could be an outside chance for him as well. Uh, with how things, yeah, are. I'd be
4: yeah surprised if he doesn't go. Todd Astle doesn't play four day cricket anymore. Um, you do have uh, the other interesting one that actually comes to mind is uh, Ripon yeah. from um, from a sending over a left arm Chinaman. Now, I don't know what his red ball stats are like. I could search for those feverishly in the break, but um, you know, just sending a spinner who's actually got because a left arm spinner, left arm also which you need to right-hand batters, but then the left-arm wrist spinner between him and Saudi might be a very interesting choice or a great opportunity for us to grow a, a spinner over there in subcontinent conditions. I mean, I've, I've played in Pakistan, and, gee, the, the pitches can be dead, but they can also be quite lively. So I'd say the curator will be under a little bit of pressure putting some nice green grass on it when we head over there.
3: Uh, that's all we've got time for with uh, Swinging Both Ways. And believe me, there's plenty more cricket we could have spoken about. But we can save some of these topics for another week. Uh, Swinging Both Ways brought to you by PGD Rights and Turf. PGD Rights and Turf, premium supplies of turf and seed and maintenance products to cricket grounds across New Zealand. Keep those texts coming through on double eight double three, on who you would love to to have a meal with. It could be someone dead or alive. Uh, this is paying our respects to Sir Murray Holberg, who passed away uh, sadly a couple of days ago. But coming up after the break, 13 minutes away from 11 o'clock, it is time. For the Ocho. Nine minutes away from 11 here on the Saturday session. Ben Francis and Grant Elliott with you through to 11 o'clock. And then I'll be uh, stepping aside when Daniel McCarty will be uh, taking over. He's just finished calling uh, some of the FIFA World Cup. But it is time for the Ocho. And we're going to start off with uh, Grant Elliott, uh, see what he has to say.
4: Well, Ronnie O'Sullivan saw a snooker record taken away from him in just 30 minutes after a commentator had announced his achievement. The rocket rattled in a magnificent quickfire century in a frame two of four-nil whitewash win over China's Bai Langing as at the Scottish Open. Bungling Eurosport commentator Neil Foulds called the century live at three minutes and 24 seconds after O'Sullivan sank the final yellow to take the break to 100 and counting. However, within 30 minutes, the truth emerged that the initial call was incorrect. And the break was timed at three minutes and thirty four seconds. Three seconds outside his previous best. Or it's the bit, previous best. It's
3: a <laughs> bit unfair, isn't it?
4: Yeah. Um I mean, who, do they have someone timing it? I uh, they must have. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even realise they had someone there. They'd have to go back to the video, wouldn't they? Yeah. So obviously the commentator's gone, oh, it's brilliant. He's, he's out by 10 seconds. So wherever that 10 seconds gone, I mean, is he timing it? Normally what happens when you're commentating, you have someone feed the information to you and they've said, that's a world record, which is what happened with us um, in, in Taurama. One of the, our statisticians, he said, that's it. We're, we're the world champions now, but they only assess your world championship points in uh, cricket after the series is finished and we still had a game to go. Oh, so at that we oh. said, p- remember this day, the 1st of January, 2021 or two, whenever it was, um, New Zealand are world champions. And as soon as he said that, the um, statistician said, I think I may have messed that up. (laughs) So it's out
3: there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Speaking of world records, as you know, on the Ocho, we love talking about some world records. And the Guinness World Records actually released a montage of some of the most crazy and wacky records that were smashed in the month of November. Some of these records include the most claps in a minute, which is 1,140, the most walnut smashed in a minute, 303, the longest duration of juggling three objects while, uh, like, uh, sur- surfing, you know, when you're on the back of a boat, uh, wake surfing, I think that's called, 19 minutes and 17 seconds. And probably one of my favorites was uh, the longest throw and catch of a hot dog in a bun, which was 51 meters.
4: Oh, my word. That That's, a, that's an amazing distance to throw a hot dog.
3: It is. But there was one Grant... And I saw it and I was like, we are going to get Grant Elliott to do this before the end of the year. We have to get Grant <laughs> to do this because it's cricket related. Well, it's kind of cricket related.
4: Well, uh, we've got a whole list of things you want me to do.
3: Yeah, well, we do, but we, can, we, we touched on those after 11, I think. But this world record, and I want to add this to your list because I think it's something that we could definitely attempt live on air. And that is the world record was broken for the fastest time to type the alphabet wearing cricket gloves. And that was 8.56 seconds.
4: Eight, less than nine seconds. Well, I'd love to know the device that he was typing on. I was we a, need to find out what was
3: sort a, of device. It was a computer. Did, uh, there, was a video, there was a video of him doing it.
4: Like, okay, well, you know, I'll be up for that challenge. I can bring my cricket clubs in. Uh, I mean, that's one heck of a world record. I don't think I can break it, but we'll give it a shot.
3: Uh, I will look forward to it, Grant. That can be something we do for next week. It is five minutes away from 11 here on the Saturday session. Coming up after the break, the return of Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott.
1: Hello, folks. How are you all doing? I'm oh. Daniel. He's Grant. He's back. Well, no, you were out there. I was always here.
4: Yeah, but, I mean, you're back on the Saturday sesh. This should be reinvigorating for you.
1: I'm feeling a little bit flat, Grant. How like, flat? I'm like, flat as a roll pundi test wicket.
4: Uh, the roll pundi. No wonder Shabak died to it, buy 160 k an hour. They,
1: what, like, um, you know, do they get that from Bunnings? Like, and then, then just roll it out?
4: Yeah, I don't know. Because I think I, I, we were chatting about it. Ben Francis asked some great questions on swinging both ways. And one of them what was... Well done, Ben. Yeah, one of them was around the um cricket ball. And around the difference of uh, the kookaburra and the duke ball. Oh, and I said, well, I remember in 2000, 2001, there was a player called Wajahatula Wasti. Could you say that again? Wajahatula Wasti. How do you spell that? W-A-J-A-A-T-U-L-L-A-A-H. How quickly could you type that? Probably in under 10 seconds. Yeah, you've just done the alphabet under 10 seconds. (laughs) Anyway. So he scored 900s in a row because they were using the Kookaburra ball. They trialed the Kookaburra ball in Pakistan. And clearly the Kookaburra ball on those pitches is not a good
1: idea. Not a a match made in heaven.
4: When you turn on your TV and you see Leach bowling the second over and then you turn your TV back on and Joe Root is bowling the 20th over and bowls a bouncer first ball (laughs) as an off spinner... You know you're clutching at straws to try and get wickets, so yeah, they, um, they really did struggle, the bowlers. I know that England, I mean, they play an entertaining brand, but
1: clearly it is the sort of pitch that you can probably play that entertaining brand. Uh, that, to, the, to the New Zealand batsmen listening, unfortunately you're playing in Karachi in the first test, mm, and Multan, I think in the second yeah, well, Karachi actually can do a little bit when I was yeah, there. Yeah. But what I wanted to ask you—you're not uh, getting—you're not getting seven hundred. I and how many overs? Ninety or something. That was just my goodness yeah. gracious me. It's just not cricket, man.
4: Let's see how. Let's see how well you know your cricket, Daniel. Yep. How many balls do you think were left by the England batters in the first innings? Thirteen. <laughs> yes, you've done your math. It was it 13, exactly? That is the best guess of the year.
1: <laughs> that was an utter guess.
4: Was it? Yeah.
1: Amazing guess. Complete guess.
4: So they, they have been striking um, at 69% of deliveries. Wow. When you look at Crick Viz. Now, to put context into that...
1: Pakistan were bowling wicket to wicket. They bowl wicket to yeah. wicket. You have to. You have to.
4: But to put context into that, the striking um, percentage of scoring shots... In one day cricket and T20s, one day's was forty nine percent, and T20s for England was sixty four percent. So they're striking at more balls um, in Test cricket, well, in this Royal Pindi Test, than they have been in T20 cricket.
1: Incredible stuff! That that is great train spotting. Mm. You, you've given me a bit of life. <laughs> Unlike the uh, the poor bowlers suffering in that test, uh, the West Indies. Bowlers suffered against Australia, but uh, the Australian bowlers, after suffering early, uh, found a way to pick up uh, 10 wickets uh, in the box set of their test match. I will continue to talk uh, about that as uh, things roll on. It's almost four minutes after 11. Top of the hour means uh, let's update you with the very latest in sports headlines. And let's start off with uh, the FIFA World Cup. We are the home of the FIFA World Cup, of course, Grant. Uh, Every game live, make sure we get the SCNZ app. We are now down to 16 teams. Yes, uh, we officially have... A round of 16 booked. Uh, earlier today, it was South Korea who reached knockout stage for just the second time. After, after a stoppage time a goal, yes, it had to be an injury time. The last few days, Grant, had just been absolutely bonkers. Uh, they beat Portugal by two goals to one to finish ahead of Uruguay. Uh, for most goals scored. Yes, the countback was decided on uh, most goals scored. Uh, Yeah, incredible stuff. (laughs) Um, Meantime, uh, Brazil have finished top of their group despite losing to Cameroon. So They've lost to Cameroon by one goal to nil. Brazil still finished top. uh, And it was uh, Switzerland who beat Serbia in a wild game, three goals to two. Serbia go out. Switzerland go through to take on Portugal in the round of 16. Brazil will take on the Korean Republic. Uh, So well done to uh, the Korean Republic and... Uh, well, Portugal had already picked. That's why you flat.
4: It's because the World Cup has been such a a, a group of upsets and emotional distraught for a lot of fans, hasn't it? Yeah. And no
1: one's no one can predict a game at the moment. Harder to pick than a broken nose, Grant. It really <laughs> has been. It's been a, a joy to, to be involved in. Uh, David Choate and I's, um, involvement has finished, so that's a good thing. We can sleep and not dream about football and not do hours... Of prep and try to learn names like that. So, say that name for me, Grant. See if you can say this name.
4: Uh, okay, I'm going to give it a, uh, straight away.
1: Yeah. Inga Pondo
4: NBC. Okay. Um, and close. go! Inga
1: Pondo NBC. Who is <laughs> he from? He's from Cameroon. Simon Inga Pondo NBC. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I can't even say it, and I've been trying it all week. Anyway, let's carry on with some headlines, and the Black Sox are now likely to finish eighth. Ouch! At the Men's Softball World Cup after losing 7-4 to Japan last evening, it was uh, our nation's side losing their fourth game in seven at the Auckland-based tournament. The Black Sox final game is against Denmark uh, today. Please, Denmark, be nice. <laughs> be nice. Come on, Denmark. I know Australia knocked you out of the... Uh, uh, the Football World Cup would be nice. Uh, and Silver Ferns defender Katrina Rouré has confirmed uh, her retirement from international netball with more than 100 tests in the black dress. Uh, taking to Instagram, uh, you say the former Silver Ferns captain, now 35, announced her decision to leave the international arena behind, putting her young family first. I think she's now juggling number two. What a yep. great servant. Absolute great character. Great person we know her well.
4: Yeah, no, that, that's sad. I, I mean, she's given a lot to that sport. And she's had a lot of ups and downs as well. Um, when I look at, you know, The career I had, having all those ups and downs, she had quite a similar career. Um, She had extreme highs where she was captain at one stage, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, extreme lows as captain. Everyone remember the silver uh, ferns at the Commonwealth Games and Mm. distraught she was, you know, having to front the media after they um, sort of fell flat on their face. But she gave everything to that sport. I used to um, share a
4: uh, squat rack machine with her at the ASB Kilburnie. And
1: Let me guess, she put
4: you to shame? I'm pretty sure that... Fairly um, powerful individual. Well, we that. used to joke about it, but yeah. she I said, was there enough weights for her in the room? Because she, she she was a machine in the gym, and she, her body was a temple. She gave a lot to that sport and deserves a lot back from it now.
1: Yeah, so we wish her all the very, very best. Who um, first played for New Zealand as a 21-year-old and has applied 137 times for her country and was part of the side that won the 2019 Netball World Cup in England. Uh, enjoy retirement. Um, we'll probably have to pester her in the weeks to come, maybe.
4: Yeah, she'd be She, she reeks of a
1: legend. She reeks of a legend. Uh, speaking of uh, sporting legends, our um, sporting legend, um, we're going to talk some squash. Do you play squash? No. I'd imagine you'd play squash. No, not with my calves. A bit of a lithe individual, hit the ball hard. Do you know what I found difficult was... Well, being in a closed confined... Being Confines, in a box. And, like like every Saturday, we are. We're put in a yeah. tiny box together.
4: But thinking about the rebound, because with cricket, I always just ran after
1: the ball. I didn't expect it to rebound off a wall back again. So, yeah, I I struggled with that concept. Yeah, we're going to talk uh, squash with our Saturday session, Legend and Association with Somerset. Think legendary here. Think Somerset Retirement Villages. Shelley Kitchen's going to join the program, I and mean, I'll... Won a whole swag of medals uh, throughout her career, she was a professional for a long, long time. I think is where she uh, you know, learnt the sport at a very, very young age. I uh, was a national age group champion, I think, from under 13s onwards. So it's always sort of destined.
4: Yeah, ben, ben Francis and I were talking about how if you haven't listened to our Legion segment, you should always tune in because just the passion that you can hear in the voice of our Legions and just. How they've got this constant fire burning for the sport, and I'm sure that Shelly Kitchen will be no different. Uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learnt, life lessons as well as uh, lessons of you know just how passionate you have to be at not only sports
1: but in life to succeed. Oh, I've got a question for the audience. Double eight, double three, probably the best way because we're going to have Shelly on in about five or so minutes. And uh, now that we've got 16 contenders still alive in this football World Cup. We have just seen a group phase where no one has won all their games. Mm. Brazil lost to Cameroon. Crazy. It has been crazy. Uh, If you are to name just one, just one, one team you are utterly certain, a thousand percent certain, even though we know that's physically impossible, that will make the Football World Cup final. Who is it? Let us know. Double eight, double three. I'm not even asking for two. Just one. And if you can explain why, give me a reason or two. It might be Brazil because Neymar will be back, for example. Double eight, double three. Send your messages through. We'd love to, you know, run a little bit of an unscientific straw poll. It's coming home, really. <laughs> I would love to see England win. Mate, it.
4: I think just because I would love to see them in Qatar. I'd love to see them celebrate in Qatar because the number of. Paddy wagons they'd have to line up to, to
1: roll them into after a victory. There's not enough victory. booze and Qatar to get those guys drunk. <laughs> There's not enough there? prisons. No. I actually think people are putting a line through England way too early. I, I've got England making a deep run. Really? I could see them. Absolutely.
4: Spain? I put Spain the quarter
1: in. final. looks their tricky match. I think they'll get past Senegal. They'll probably play France. Mm. Get through that. Could easily make it to a final. But anyway, that's, that's my uh, take. I'd like to know from the ever-knowing Saturday Session uh, listener on double eight double three. just one team and why? Why are you confident in this uh, tournament of twists and turns of wild rides uh, who will make it through to the final on December 19th? Now you've seen every side play three times. We will talk some uh, football World Cup with the World Cup baby himself. Yes, author uh, and World Cup superfan Mr Ewan McCabe who's watched every single World Cup game, Grant. Since 1994, he takes annual leave to watch. Um, I don't think there is a stronger authority on all things football World Cup. Um, he's also watched more terrible Wellington Firebirds performances than probably <laughs> anyone else, because he's always perched up in the R.A. Vance stand, too, <laughs> with his mate. I call him the Waldorf and Stadler of uh, Wellington cricket, but he's a, a, a fine footballing I can't wait to catch up with him in about an hour's time to talk that. Uh, a reminder, the Cancer Society Longest Day Golf Challenge is on now. Register at longestday.org.nz. Get your text coming through. Who's the World Cup finalist? It's, it's a pretty simple question. Double eight, double three. let us know. love to get your contribution. But coming up after the break, it is time for our Saturday Session Legend. We talk squash with the great Shelley Kitchen. Stay with us. Back after this break. 16 after 11 o'clock. This is the Saturday Session. Double eight, double three. your text. The question uh, this hour. Uh, Now that we've got 16 teams through to the round of 16 at uh, the FIFA World Cup, for which SCNZ is your home of, you can listen to every single game via the SCNZ app. Uh, Get it. Uh, Don't be disappointed. You won't be. Uh, We want to know one, just one, one half of the equation. Who makes it through to the final on the 19th of December? Spain.
4: Spain? Well, I I I got Spain. Spain that
1: lost to Japan yesterday.
4: Yeah, I got Spain at $9, I think. Right, so you're saying Spain. So so you'll be to Spain. So you
1: walked away from England.
4: Well, I'm no, I'd I'd, them up. I'd I'd love to see England just because of the shambles that would ensue in Qatar. I think that what Qatar would never have seen scenes like that. Right, okay. So, <laughs> that so
1: basically you're inviting mayhem in the Middle East. <laughs> well, I saw... Yeah, basically.
4: I saw an English fan with um, the locals and he was like, it's coming home. And he was singing, it's coming home. And then he, then he started like um, almost a military chant of free Palestine. And they were wow. all behind him. Well, and Quite uh, a tangent. Yeah, and he just kept going. And I was like, wow, these guys, the English fans,
1: how are and, they surviving over there? Oh, well, it's probably hot for them, for their pasty <laughs> white figures. <laughs> double eight, double three. just one team you're confident will make it through to the final when all is said and done. Right now, though, it is time for our Saturday Session Legends segment as uh, we uh, are delighted every Saturday to be joined by a fine New Zealand athlete, player, coach, team talk about careers, moments in sport that are legendary. We're going to uh, go under the hood of squash, which Grant and I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, We we have a fear of confined spaces anyway, um, and generally they have to crowbar us, not out. They have to push us in, push us into our little cupboard in our Wellington studio in Petone. Uh, This is all in association with Somerset, think legendary Keith and Somerset Retirement Villages. Shelley Kitchen has raked up quite a few milestones in her career. Let's start off with the I always get these wrong, don't laugh at me. Shelley Kitchen, MNZM, did I get that right? Of course, um, order of merit, is that order of merit? But uh, world champion uh, in double squash, Commonwealth Games, medalist, world team championship medalist as well, just to name a few, and she's dropped by on the program this Saturday. Shelley, thanks so much for joining us. Do we find you in fine form? Good morning, Shelley.
2: morning, morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Our pleasure, our pleasure. Where are you at the moment?
2: I am in Auckland at the moment um, for nice. the weekend. Oh, so, what um, f- yeah, oh, so na- for the weekend?
1: For the weekend, what uh, what down to party? Anything exciting lined up for the weekend? Grant and I don't have a life anymore, so we live vicariously through others.
2: Um, yeah, my daughter had her school ball last night and prize giving, and she dances as well. So. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, so lots going on. We moved to Whangarei um, about four weeks ago from Auckland, so still sort of trying to disconnect at the moment from Auckland, which is quite hard, especially at this time of year. But um, yeah, so slowly sort of moving back home on my way back up up north to Kaitaia.
4: So Shelley, were there some stern words with your daughter's date as to what time she was to be home and um, the exact rules of engagement? <laughs>
2: Well, she's ten,
0: <laughs>
2: so um, so she had a year at the primary school slash intermediate school ball. So um, yeah, I picked her up at eight thirty, but um, yeah, she had a, had a great 830? time. Eight thirty.
1: 8.30, oh, okay. that's late It's a bit late This is, is a true story My mother used to make me go to bed at 8.30 when I was 16 years of age <laughs> That's brilliant <laughs> May God rest her soul You know Is that why
4: you enjoy commentating up at the early hours? Yeah, you can't wait like to that. do a T20 it, till 3am
1: Yeah, something like that So you're going back to where it all began Of course, uh, you know Proudly from Tito uh, Tokareau, of course um, That's where it all started But how young did you pick
2: up a squash racket in anger? Um, I probably started playing squash when I was about two years old, so just sort of um, my my mum played, and my sister played as well, and it was a really, really strong sport in Kaitaia um, many many years ago, like really strong club. We had lots of sort of New Zealand representatives. Um, Yeah, it was just quite a popular thing to do in Kaitaia. My mum was the club captain, so she ran ran all the tournaments. Um, But I think I probably first started sort of just hitting, hitting the ball against our carport, um, in the early mornings. <laughs> so, I'd, yeah, probably didn't really, sort of, yeah, the neighbours probably didn't really, weren't really impressed with that. But, um, yeah, I definitely started, yeah, when I was very young.
4: Shelly, uh, uh, I was talking with our producer, Ben Francis, earlier, and we were talking about um, he loves his darts, passionate about darts. I was obviously passionate about cricket. And when you talk about hitting the ball against, you know, the carport early morning, I was always up. I had the ball on a string, and I used to, you know, be able to hit this cricket ball in a string and it would come back to me. So I didn't need anyone to throw to me. And I would do this for hours. I'm sure I drove my parents and neighbours crazy about it. But what we spoke about was that passion inside you, that you this fire, you don't know where it comes from, you can't explain it. But you wake up every morning and you know you all you think about is how can I be the best I can possibly be at that sport. Is that something that you had from a young age and can you remember the age that I guess you recognise that, that passion for wanting to be the best squash player you could possibly be?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think when I first started playing, I just loved yeah, hitting a ball. And it was squash because that's where my family sort of hung out a lot. And then um, my sister played as well. So I think, I think I really got the bug and wanted to sort of be the world champion, I guess, when I was about 14 years old. But up until then, um, we couldn't actually play any tournaments until we were 10 years old at my squash club. Which is probably quite good, because if I played any earlier, I possibly could have sort of burnt out and, and not played, you know, for as long as I did. So um, waiting until we were 10 was, was actually a really good move for me. Um, got got wasted, really, when I first played, started playing New Zealand junior tournaments um, and any national events right up until I was sort of 13, 14. So, um, but, yeah, probably when I was about 14, 15, I decided I want to sort of yeah go as far as I could in plain squash. It was just a big dream for me, really never really thinking I would sort of get close, um, and saying that I wasn't close to either being world champion in singles, but <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, being on the tour was, yeah, it was fun. met lots of people, go to some amazing places, um, But yeah, and, and sort of have lifelong friends friends, I think that's probably um yeah the most I got out from out of plane squash.
1: Yeah, but you, you won a whole heap through those teenage, teenage years once you did start competing. And, I, and I'm just reading uh, the list here, uh, Squash NZ, their website provide career highlights. New Zealand under 13 champ, under 15 champ, under 17 champ, even won the Australian under 17 champs. Uh, New Zealand under 19 <laughs> twice, under 21 three times. Man, there would have been a whole heap of expectation on you as a teenager. How did you cope with that? Was it, you know, you loved it, you just loved competing, you loved winning, or was there a bit of pressure on you at that stage that, you know, squash could become something for you professionally?
2: Yeah, I I never really felt the pressure when I was sort of in my teenage years. And I don't know why. I think, um, you know, I just played because I just love playing and, you know, I love meeting lots of people, love the travelling, I love training, and I love just playing squash. So I didn't really feel the pressure. You know, if I lost a few times, that was was okay. My parents never put any pressure on me at all and always supported me. Um, We had a really good club in Kaitaia. And we had, like I said before, we had junior representatives before me. Um, and then our team, our New Zealand under-19 team, the three of us were from Kaitaia. And then we came runners-up to England in 1997 in Brazil. Um, so, yeah, we just had, yeah, lots of support up there. All went away together to tournaments. And, yeah, it was just really fun. So I didn't really feel the pressure at all. And even when I played them professionally, um, you know you win some, you lose some, yeah, you're disappointed, you lose, but um yeah that's not the only reason why I played was to win because you know you'd stop playing pretty quickly if that was the case, <laughs> yeah, so no I, I didn't really find find too much pressure um sort of through those teenage years
1: you're a pretty relaxed individual by the sounds. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, probably just getting it from my parents.
0: <laughs>
2: I think yeah, I'm pretty relaxed and yeah, and like I said, just it yeah, didn't really seem to have such so, too much pressure on, on me when I played, which was good. But we, you know, we didn't really have social media back then and people making comments about performances and things like that. So what well, I definitely played in a different era to to now. Um, yeah, which I think sort of made made it made me more relaxed. Yeah, made a little bit more relaxed environment to play sport than it is probably now.
4: Shelley, one of the things I I read up on is that you you realized that you weren't really a big fan of team sports for whatever reason, that you felt that um, (laughs) you you had destiny was in your own hands, I I remember reading, that if you played an individual sport. However, you did did succeed at uh, double squash, and I can't imagine playing double squash in that confined court space I, <laughs> you know but, too
1: fast man have you seen double squash it is oh, so ridiculously fast I run. don't know
4: where you'd stand uh, you'd get in the way all the time obstruction. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, how did you enjoy obviously the the side of playing squash by yourself uh, that you know single sort of sport uh, but then also doubles what, what was the difference
2: um yeah so I sort of doubles kind of, was quite late in my career um like I never played played doubles when I was a junior. Really coming through. It wasn't until it was introduced to the Commonwealth Games in 1996, and then I think I went to the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in 2002 when I first played doubles for sort of internationally. Um, the court is bigger, so um, which makes a difference. It's, yeah, it's not not so confined, I guess, than you know four people on a singles court. So um, it was just. I had really good doubles partners, actually, when I played. I played with Glenn Wilson in the mix, and he, he uh, sort of won a gold medal with Leilani Joyce um, at the Commonwealth Games before I played with him. So I was lucky to have really good partners. Then I went on to play with Tamsin Levy, who I played all through my junior and senior career as well. So I think, um, yeah, I just jobbed with my partners, really. Like I said, I was quite relaxed. Um, but, yeah, yeah, a lot different to individuals. It was actually quite nice to have someone out there on the court with, with me and I could sort of say, yours, yours, or mine, mine. Um, and just, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that was quite good. But um, when I was sort of younger, I tried to play netball, but there was always a clash with netball and squash in the weekends. So then obviously I, I chose squash. So, um yeah with individually it was just up to me really training whenever I want, organize my own games and have to rely on anyone else really to sort of um, play, um, yeah, the sport that I love. So I think that's why I gravitated more to squash than than netball when I was younger.
4: Shelley, it sounds like the club, the Kaitaia Club was probably the most instrumental in your your love of the sport, but can you uh, put your finger on who was probably the most motivating person for you behind your career and someone that um, either you admired or someone that really pushed you to be the best you could possibly be um, in squash?
2: Um, you know, I just grew up watching Susan Devo- Dame Susan DeVoy. Um, yeah. I used to video, video, and like in the old days. Oh, video how good. <laughs> and then, um, you know, then put a video in, or VCR, I think it was, and just watch it like, you know, I don't know, a hundred times I probably watched her play um, back then, just replay, the, you know, the whole time. So that was pretty amazing, you know, watching her play. Um, but did you try to copy Louise her was, as a player? Oh no, not really, because she was so good. You know, I never thought. Yeah. Um, I I probably like she had a really amazing backhand drop which everyone, obviously everyone spoke about and knew about, but yeah. my short game really wasn't very good and I could never really drop Yeah, it. okay,
1: fair enough. Just I get you. Yeah, yeah, I get Yeah, It's like, <laughs> you'd be stupid to try and imitate that.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, it sort of hit the ball at the back and then she just put an amazing drop. So no, it was just more just, I don't know what gravitated me towards. I guess she was just winning all the time and, and, and I loved the game at the time. So, um, uh, yeah, but also, yeah, we had... Yeah, like I said, we had New Zealand representatives performing at the Kai squash club, so we're always sort of, and we had really popular sort of tournaments too. So Dame Susan used to come up to our Kai tournament summer open. Um, yeah, so and we had the New Zealand nationals in Kai Remember when I was probably about ten? Um, you know, so all those all those things were kind of quite instrumental to me while I was growing up. Um, Louise Rogers, she represented New Zealand before me then she came back to um, Kaitaia and she coached us. And she was actually pregnant at the time and nine months pregnant and actually coaching us on the court, <laughs> um, you know, feeding us balls. And that was every day. And, you know, for for, for no, no money or anything like that, just because she loved to help us. So um, just having that kind of support, yeah, was really, yeah, I look back and, yeah, good memories for me.
1: Tell us a- about the contest, being out there, you know, taking on some of the very best uh, single squash players in the world because, you know, it's a it's a tight confine. The ball's pinging around. You're moving around left, right, forward, back. Bit of contact. Sweating on each other, probably, um, you know, saying a few words. You know, how hot and heated does it get inside <laughs> there? You know, it be sensory overload, would it not?
2: Oh, yeah, you sort of just... There's not really much interaction between your players unless you... Um, There's probably more interaction with the referee, with anything. At least you're trying to wind your opponent up a little bit and you might kind of give them a bit of a nudge or block here and there, which was not really kind of my style. I was, yeah, I sort of just kept to myself a lot when I played. I didn't really sort of interact too much. So, but yeah, I sort of, I don't know, it's just really intense. It's, you know, you're just on there, just giving it everything. Um, It's hard to remember, really, because I played professionally for about 10 years. Um, yeah, it's just really competitive, hard, you know, really hard. Sometimes yeah. you had your off days and you had no idea, you know, why, you know, why it just wasn't working or anything like, like that. So, you know, preparation was a really big thing for me. I just made sure I could do everything I could basically to try and perform, so, um, but yeah, it's yeah, for a long game. I still play now and I sort of try and play like how I used to, which is not very good at all. <laughs> yeah. very badly. But um yeah, I, I think I still get that adrenaline rush definitely from playing now than yeah, oh. you know, the same as what I used to get. So
1: Fantastic.
4: Um your dad was a firefighter. He must have given you the mental aptitude and uh tell you a few <laughs> things like I uh, uh, I know I do with my kids. I get them in the car and they can't go anywhere and that's when I generally tell them what I think about how they should approach <laughs> things and they can't run away or they'll roll their eyes. Um, but you must have got a lot yeah. from your dad in terms of uh, his his vocation.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, the fibre game was definitely my, my dad's life and our life as well. Up um, there, they used to have so many calls and I used to remember him middle of the night you know going going to a cause all the time um and that was a big part of our life as well i I just think that um yeah that volunteer volunteerism side of things my dad that definitely rubbed off to me probably more so now in my life (laughs) um you know squash club captain helping at the school as much as i can and really trying to give back to the sport as much as i can um, so, I, th- I think that's where I think my dad's influence of being involved in the fire service has sort of rubbed off on me more so than, um, you know, when I was younger and him going to fires and stuff like that. I probably didn't actually realise um, the uh, sort of the trauma, I guess, that my dad was going through going to with some of those fire calls and accidents and some of the stuff I used to see. Yeah. I was probably too busy at squash and do my own thing or going to school, or whatever. So, but he probably had that really well. Um, from us yeah. too so
1: um, yeah yeah that kind of makes sense Yeah, and gave you great context I guess you know losing a squash game is um you know no nowhere near as bad as uh, some of the things he would have seen over the, uh, over the years for sure uh, what I'm amazed when we speak to our legends here Shelley Kitchen is with us we talk about her, her great squash career uh, is how sort of blasé a number of our legends are about what they've achieved in the past and how Actually, how bad their memory is of, of some of, of their, uh, you know, more headline-grabbing acts. So, you know, you've picked up Commonwealth medals, you've World Team Championships, World doubles Championship medals, a host of national titles. Are there any performances or wins or losses even that, that stand out beyond the rest?
2: Um, Yeah, definitely for me, um, the Commonwealth Games in 2006 in in Melbourne, so um, I got bronze, picked up a bronze in the singles. so I beat Nicole David for the third, fourth playoff. Never in my wildest dreams that I think I'd I'd sort of come come away with the medal in the singles. I trained, I trained quite hard for it, but the competition was just really strong, and I sort of sacrificed the maybe sort of four to six tournaments overseas just to prepare for the Commonwealth Games, so, but even though I'd done all the training and been at home the whole time with my team, you know, they were still, you know, pretty amazing. And Nicole was probably, possibly number one in the world at the time. So when I went into that bronze medal match, I was like, oh, you know, you know, hope I get some points. It'd be cool if I get a game, <laughs> you, know, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, being at the Commonwealth Games, you just raise your level because the team around you, it's not just your, your family and friends watching. It's actually the, the bigger team and, you know, the whole of New Zealand watching you so um, yeah so that, that, that was really amazing um, another one was I bet Nicole David again another time at the world champs when I think she was world champion maybe the year before and my parents were there so they, they um, went to the world cup in 2007 to France and that's when New Zealand sort of had their shock the all blacks had their shock exit I think um, 2007 the, yeah 2007 is that right the world
1: cup yeah so nicole had won the world championships the two prior years and, and for those who don't know the sport she only went on to win six more world championships so nicole david was kind of you know the business
2: yeah yeah she was amazing i lost to her like I don't know, 13 times before i finally beat it but my parents were there in france watching me and that was just really amazing because usually it's just one, one other friend of, like, on the tour and watching me no coaches you Know, but they were there and I was so disappointed for them because I've been on this um, trip to watch the All Blacks at the World Cup, and obviously they lost and they were disappointed and I kind of a bit sad about that. Um, but then they came to Spain to watch me play, and I, yeah, you know, beat Nicole David when I was there. So probably had, yeah, my biggest wins really when my parents and my family were with me. Um, so oh, that's awesome. It's a bit of a shame they couldn't travel with me a little bit more. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> Oh, 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 yeah. Shelley, we we actually we're asking our listeners at the moment just um you know with the the sad passing of uh um Sir uh, Murray Helberg. Um we're mm-hmm. asking them who would they love to spend a dinner with, either living or deceased sports person. Do you have that person in your mind?
2: Oh. Yeah, I thought it's I a thought tough one to Samaria answer Her- straight away, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's really hard. So that Murray Helberg to um this, well, when he passed, because I've just been putting in some nominations because I work for Scottish Zealand. I'm a HP yeah. manager for Scottish Zealand. So we just put in our Halberg nominations for Paul Cole and Joe King for, for next year. So, yeah, sort of, yeah, sort of been doing that all, all this week. And yeah, it's, it's really sad. Yeah, I, I found it really sad of hearing of him passing. Um, but for me, oh, jeez, oh, It's a tough one, oh, isn't it? No, it really is a tough one. Oh,
0: that is really tough. Oh, jeez. I might have to park that That's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't have you, to answer it. Tell yeah. me what
1: you can do as we wrap this up. Um, we wanted to get into what you are doing currently now. And perfect segue, you've brought it up yourself. Still heavily involved in the sport at the pointy end. We are seeing a, a really fabulous run um, from our, our leading squash players. You know, for to those who don't know the sport in and out, try to give some context, you know, what we are seeing from from our number one players at the moment, you think?
2: Yeah, they're doing amazing well. Like, um, Paul Cole, he he was world number one in March this year, um, for 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 a couple of months, and the first men's world number one that we've had for, for ever. Um, so that was really amazing. He won he won the British Open two years in a row. Now he won our first squash Commonwealth gold gold medal. And the singles um and then of course we've got joe king who's been at the top of the top of the game in squash in new zealand and the world for about 10 years now and um yeah just really just flying the flag for us in squash in new zealand and we had the new zealand open which is the first time we've had for 30 years in tauranga about three weeks ago and they both come back for it and we and oh yeah it was just amazing it's just, we've got a lot more coverage now which is great, great for squash. <laughs> um, we've got seven emerging pros overseas as well touring, so, so they've come through COVID. Um, they've kept playing, which has been awesome. They were stuck in New Zealand for you know, two years, but we managed to sort of keep them going with our domestic tournament team. And now we've got eight players overseas playing. So, um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're really happy with where the sport is at right now in New Zealand and overseas.
4: Shelley, one of the things, the toughest things at the moment is sports competing with other sports. You know, we've seen a drop-off in rugby and um, cricket, the big sports. Um, indoor, indoor sports uh, like basketball are uh, becoming increasingly popular. Um, do you find the numbers yeah. in squash, um, you know, A, what are you doing to increase those numbers? And B, what are the numbers like? Are there a lot of young kids taking up the game?
2: Um, our numbers, um, we've got a really good uh, sort of, we've got a club system over here in, in New Zealand. So our numbers are up 10% in the past two years, but that's oh, not wow. taking into consideration the population growth. So we're probably maybe 5% up, which is really, really good. And I think the profile of squash with Paul and Joelle doing so well has definitely helped. Doing well at the Commonwealth Games, um, you know, doing well in the professional circle, being in the media a little bit more, being on TV. You know, I I really think it does make a difference. And it's probably a lot of people coming back to the game that possibly played 20 or 30 years ago coming back to the game or introducing their children or grandchildren to the game as well. Um, Yeah, so so we're up up a little bit. We're always, of course, looking for more participation opportunities. We have dropped a little bit in female um, youth, youth especially female. So we're going to... It's a priority for ours in the next couple of years. We've got a sort of junior program uh, group together, and just trying to take, yeah, just get make more of the youth aware of squash. A lot of people don't even know what squash is, unfortunately, the young kids. <laughs> um, they think it's kind of a form of tennis or it's sort of, no, I just actually don't know what it is. So we want to try and take um, yeah, you know, the sport to schools and also make, make use of all the clubs that we have around New Zealand. We've got 190 clubs in New Zealand. Um, you know, okay. so make use of those clubs that are next near schools, like walking distance from schools and trying to connect the schools and, and the clubs a little bit more. Um, but then you need vibrant clubs for that as well and you need good coaches and you need volunteers and clubs. So And a lot of people are quite time-pressed at the moment. So, yeah, it's a bit of, a, it, it's tough, like other sports as well. But, um, yeah, we just have to keep going. We just want to keep our sport alive and, and people just playing the game because it is fun. It is fun to play.
1: Well, Shelley, thanks so much for dropping by, shedding some light on your own career, what's happening in the sport at the moment. Good luck for the next chapter. Uh, It's been really enjoyable having you on the the program. Thanks so much, and good luck for the teenage years. If they go to balls at age 10, you've got got trouble ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, Shelley.
2: I know, I know, right? Thank you.
1: Shelly Kitchen joining us on the programme. Uh, great to get her uh, insights into uh, her own career and what's happening with squash. Part of our Saturday session, legend segment, in association with Somerset. Think new friends, new laughs, and a new home. Think Somerset Retirement Villages. Somerset.co.nz. Back after this short break. 13 minutes away from 12 o'clock. Your phone's being peppered, isn't it, Grant? Your phone's being peppered. You had a very interesting question you threw out a little bit earlier. I'd love to hear some of your responses uh, people have got back to you on uh, your Instagram feed with regard to... You're not even reading it, mate. You, you got the attention span of a three-year-old on YouTube, haven't you? I do. Um, we just got an interesting one.
4: Joey Chestnut, the competitive hot, e- hot dog eating champion. What
1: was the question again? Remind the audience.
4: So the question was... Who would, uh, which sports person, living or deceased, would you love to have dinner with? Um, And I asked them to text in or just on my gram. We've got a Brendan McCullum. We've got anyone but Grant Elliott. Oh! Sir Peter. That's a bit harsh. That's all right. So you got my message. Sir Peter Blake, Trent Bolt. We've got Colin de (laughs) Grand home. One or two wanted
1: to have dinner with me. Well, no, I'd I'd like to have dinner with Colin. Colin? I said the big house because then I'd actually hear him talk oh well would you though (laughs) rather than the three word answers he's given to the press over his his career
4: (laughs) he's actually a great man yeah I know played with him I've heard I've heard he's got a big house he's got a big house Colin do grand home
0: yeah he's got a big house so
1: get your nominations coming through on double eight double three are the one athlete past present alive or dead throughout the history of the world who would you like to uh, have to dinner, and why? I, th- I think the uh, a big part of that is why. Well, now, I could say Muhammad Ali, and it's pretty obvious why. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there's some, um, you know, fascinating people out there uh, who are, you, know, you have a reason uh, to be attached to as an individual. So double eight, double three. We'll take a short break. On the other side, our first workhorse of the week, in association uh, with Midas Agra Tires. Who has been working hard to entertain our sports fans? Uh, we'll just shout our first round of awards up after this. So, <laughs> says you're on it. He's Elliot on McCarty. Uh, the one athlete, alive or dead, you want to invite to dinner? We'll have for dinner. Double eight, double three. Grant, wants your nominations? He's been peppered on Instagram. Uh, send us a text if you don't have the gram, as Grant would say. Double eight, double three. Time for our Midas advertise first start uh, round of awards. Um, for our workhorse of the week, who's been working the lands to entertain us as sports fans during the week, Midas Aggregates—the choice of leading manufacturers. Midas Aggregates: European quality, made affordable. Uh, I'm going to start with a nomination and then a non-nomination. Oh, normally you go the other way around. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to start positively and you know finish with a back compliment, maybe. Grant, I know we've laughed that it is a road, but my Midas Aggregates workhorse of the week is the English batting. I'm sorry, but in 101 overs to score 657, six ball overs. This ain't 1927 we're talking about. is extraordinary. Zach Crawley, 122 off 111. Uh, Ben Duckett, 107 off 110. These aren't one-day scores. 108 off 104 for Ollie Pope. Joe Root, terribly out of form, 23 off 31. (laughs) Uh, Harry Brook, 153 off 116 balls. Ben Stokes playing... A white ball innings. I thought he'd given up the white ball game, Grant. 41 off 18. Incredible. 567. Um, all out and 101 overs. And uh, my, my non-nomination, I wanted to be really cruel to Zahid Mahmoud, but I know he's had a pretty bad uh, couple of days. Breaking 200. He, oh. broke, he broke the double ton. 33 overs, 4 for 235. Wow. I might leave him alone and go my non-nomination is the English bowlers who then backed up their uh, batting uh, by not picking up a wicket <laughs> and 181 runs on the board.
4: Well, uh, you know, a funny story about um, Mahmud, who went for 200. Um, I played at uh, Queen's uh, Queens Park, I think it was called. It's no longer now in Christchurch. QE2 Oval, that's what it was called. Yes. And um, I bowled 43 overs and it was one of the bowlers – got injured, so we all ended up just bowling on this real Raul pindy road. And it was just tough going. And when they hit me for 100, I took my boot off and I raised my boot. <laughs> I'd had enough. They got something like five, 600.
3: incredible.
1: That is fantastic. Uh, so well done to the English uh, batsmen, uh, less so to the English bowlers. Uh, that's my nomination for Workhorse of the Week. Grant will have his in the next hour. We'll talk to the World Cup baby and McCabe about the football world cup because we've eliminated 32, 16 teams we've got 16 alive into the round of 16 he'll join us in the next hour as well are you percussion too? <laughs> I'm doing percussion into the afternoon we now turn it's 12 o'clock happy afternoon everyone Saturday session final hour of the show Andrew McCarty, Grant Elliott, Ben Francis all with you through to 1 o'clock uh, coming up in about 6 minutes time we're going to cross to uh, Pukekohe for race number one. We've also got race number two from Pukekohe at about uh, 12.40, if I'm not mistaken. World Cup baby's going to join us. You're McCabe, Mr. Football World Cup superfan and author about his fandom of uh, the Football World Cup to talk about the uh, stage of the tournament where we're now at, the round of 16. We've been asking you uh, two questions today. Uh, I can't pick a team to get through to a World Cup final on both sides of the draw, so help me out. Is there one team you're absolutely sure about that will make it to a World Cup final on December t- uh, 19th. Double eight, double three. And the second question was, Grant Elliott? Who would you want to have dinner with? Which sports star, deceased or
4: living, would you like to have um, dinner with? We've had multiple uh, answers. We've had Colin DeGrandeum. We've had Sir Peter Blake. We've had Brendan McCullum. Uh, we've got
1: Zade here has answered both those questions in one. I love that, Zay. That is four. Brilliant. That is a uh, double eight, double three sent his message to get amongst it. Love to get your thoughts on this. Hi, team. uh, Zaid here. I reckon it would be cool to have dinner with Tyson Fury. Wouldn't be a dull dinner, would it? Would you want to fire him up? You want to get him a little bit. poke the bear a little bit. You'd have to poke him. You want to poke Poke the bear a little bit just to see. Um, That would be fun. I I can understand where you're coming from. And he also writes, and I think France can win the World Cup with Kylian Mbappe. I think they've got a very good chance. Thank you very much, Zaid. Do appreciate that. Uh, Great to hear your thoughts on that. So, double eight, double three, uh, football fans, here's your chance to shine. Uh, Tell us, convince Grant and I, uh, name one team who will make a World Cup. And uh, Grant um, has thrown this question out. He's getting lots of reaction on Instagram. If there's one athlete, past or present, alive or dead, uh, that you would love to sit down, have dinner with, and you can talk about anything you want, anything you want, let us know. Double eight, double three. Right at the top of the hour, though, uh, let's get to the latest in sports headlines. Uh, Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones, you know the guy I told you about four weeks ago would probably get sacked at the end of the year because England's not very good at rugby. Yeah, And then, then went on and lost to South Africa last week. Didn't yeah, they? has but, he been know, sacked? Who did I tell you we're going to beat them last week? And yeah, our you did sporting say, tips.
4: You did our sporting tips that you should run towards at yeah. the moment.
1: Well, Eddie Jones will learn if he um, is to continue as English uh, head coach next week. Apparently, with the uh, RFU review into a dismal autumn set to conclude early next week. While Jones and the RFU have long been committed to his tenure, finishing after the Rugby World Cup next year, uh, England's form has forced a rapid uh, reappraisal of strategy. What's Razor doing next year? I I do wonder. Anyway, despite a a plucky series victory, I never like to see that in a story, a plucky, a plucky series victory over England 2022 has been underwhelming for Jones and his team. They've won five of 13 matches. That's not particularly good. Ronan O'Gara has ruled, him out, ruled himself out of contention, leaving Warren Gatlin to be the front runner. with um, Razor also in the mix, apparently. Uh, FIFA World Cup updates. Ronaldo and Portugal, we knew they were through. Who was going to come out of their group alongside them? Well, it was a late goal to South Korea to beat Ronaldo's... Yeah, it is Ronaldo's Portugal. I think that's officially what you call it, Ronaldo's <laughs> Portugal. Two goals to one, it came in at time. South Korea threw... Uh, South Korea would take on Brazil. Brazil topping their group, but only just. They lost this morning to Cameroon by one goal to nil. Uh, not enough for Cameroon to get uh, out of the group because uh, Switzerland beats uh, Serbia in a wild game. Three games to two. So those two sides have progressed out of Group G. And the White Ferns have opened their T20 International Series against Bangladesh with a record victory as to Hu's uh, career-best bowling figures inspired a 132-run victory in Christchurch. Defending just 164 to who, who took uh, figures of four for six from four overs. Backed up by three from eight from Ali Jensen as Bangladesh imploded to be all out for 32. Uh, quite an embarrassing uh, performance by Bangladesh to whose figures are the second best return for the White Fins in the shortest form. Only bettered by wife Amy Satterthwaite, You know, got for six for 17 against England in 2007.
4: So you know the first ball of her, her uh, last over. She got a healthy edge to Maddie Green, the keeper for a fifer who just who dropped no. a clanger. Yeah, she clanged no. it. It's, there's nothing worse than catching catch or oh, sorry dropping a yeah. ball on a milestone. Yeah, I've dropped a hat trick ball before. No, off home. Yeah. A Guy called Wayne Kidwell. Should we call him and, and you can
1: apologise?
4: Oh, I do, I still feel awful about it because he loaded the slip cord and there was seven of us giggling. And someone said, I hope it doesn't come to me. And we were all having a, a little bit of a laugh at the, the bizarre moment of, if it did come to you, and it came to me. And was, I, it a,
1: was it a goober in the slips? No. Okay. He, no, he it was
4: the stuff. guy had a good go at it. Yeah. And it just rocketed to me at second or third slip. And, yeah, it just it went straight in and straight out. The hands and were had, so hard. And I how did he
1: cope? It. And how did he cope?
4: Hands on knees. Yeah. You know, just quiet moment of anguish and... I felt terrible. I still feel terrible I, I, I can see it in your eyes, mate. That's you so actually—you
1: you, you got such a nice heart, Grant. About you, see, this is the third nice thing I've said to you in the history of the program. Um, Have you heard of someone called Terry Fox? Oh, that doesn't ring a bell. I was i I'd take my you know, i was talking about thinking about hat tricks. Yours was at a pretty high level. I was going to bore you with my story about when a player umpire denied me of a hat trick. Oh, tell me. Oh, two lbws banging in front. The third was even plumber and. He said, no, and then the end of the over, he said, I can't give three, mate, can I?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and I went, fair you enough. You can. I went, fair enough. the oh. oh, umpire, you know, he was in his team. Yeah. He, been, he would have been ostracized from his team. <laughs> so quickly, I, th- I think we're going to head to Pukakaya rates number one in just a moment. Have you got enough time to tell this? Yeah, Oh, so someone wants to have dinner with Terry Fox, who ran the length of Canada on one leg. What? Answer. Yeah. Now I remember that story. Not the name. I- I've heard of... Um, that ran the length of Canada. With one Canada's leg. quite a large country for those who failed geography. But
4: uh, yeah, I, I'm sure he had a prosthetic leg as well. I'm going to read up on that one. I'm going to find out who Terry Fox is.
1: All right, they're in the uh, in the gates. co, race number one, ready to jump. We're here then now. 796 in order, $5 for the win, $1.80 for the place, Four fifty and 164 places, second and third, respectively. Hope I was paying attention. We got those right. No, Ben Francis actually told me in my ear. Producer extraordinaire. Grant Elliott alongside me, Daniel McCarty. Uh, Graham writes Daniel and Grant, dinner with Sir Donald Bradman. His views of oh. cricket in the 21st century would surely be compelling.
4: Well, yeah, I, I would love to find out from Sir Don how true it was that there was no third man when he played and he loved hitting it down there. I don't know if that's... Because it wasn't in the MCC manual,
1: third man. Was there uh, really tears in your eyes when you faced Derek Hollies in your last test innings? Uh, So many other questions. Did Keith Miller really tell you to F off? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad, Graham. He's a bit of a polarizing bloke in certain uh, respects. Was Sir Don... Uh, but an incredible batsman for sure. Keep your nominations uh, coming through, double eight double three as to who uh, you'd love to have uh, dinner with, past or present, alive or dead, as far as our uh, great sporting athletes, you'd love to pick their brain. Um, and we just want to know one team you're absolutely certain of, of making it through to the final. No one's answering this question, because I don't think anyone is certain. That sums up the Football World Cup. Speaking of which, we're going to catch up with, what, a World Cup compulsive super fan, author, um, and
4: obsessive
1: he is an obsessive I think he's watched every single World Cup game from 1994 onwards <laughs> it's incredible you and McCabe the one and only the World Cup baby uh, will join us after this break great song choice Ben Francis our theme tune on the Saturday session of the World Cup you're just going to break my wife's heart my wife threw Ecuador in two different off the sweep saying ha <laughs> ha a lady. Yeah. And then after two games, they were looking like the best team in Group A uh-huh. and then conspired to lose and got eliminated. It was just a sign of what was to come in the final group uh, games. Extraordinary string of games over a number of days. Doof um, Some Euro trash here. Fantastic. Uh, one man who's been watching it all, I mean it all, uh, joins us now. Uh, Football World Cup compulsive. I, he can speak for himself, but I'm pretty sure he fell in love with the Football World Cup Argentina 1978. Um, and he has an incredible uh, string, Grant. One thing I'm certain of, no one has watched more consecutive World Cup games than our next guest. And no one has probably watched more bad performances uh, there from the Wellington Firebirds uh, than from our next fan who's generally uh, perched in the R.A. Vance. And from the same seat. I've walked yeah. past
4: him many times yeah. on that same seat.
1: It's Ewan McCabe, the World Cup baby, author and World Cup superfan. Ewan, how are you? Are you surviving halfway through a World Cup?
0: Good afternoon, Ewan. Hello, Grant. Um, I'm barely surviving. Um, This has been very rigorous, uh, I must say. 11 straight nights of four games a night, so that's 44 games in 11 days. And um, I'm looking forward to the next tournament because apparently there's going to be 80 games at the next World Cup. So I'll have to consider my future, I think, in the next four years, a possible semi-retirement maybe. Um, But I'm up to... um, I'm up to four hundred and ninety-one now. So consecutive games I've watched. So the eight round of sixteen matches, and then the first quarter final will be number five hundred. So uh, I might be hanging up my bat at some stage. I think.
1: <laughs> we, we, the streak <laughs> goes back to ninety-four, much. right? It's nineteen ninety-four. If I got uh, that right, I said it earlier on the show. I'm pretty sure it was ninety-four onwards.
0: It started in Italy in 1990. I went to the World Cup in Italy in 1990, and um, I was in the stadium in Rome uh, preparing for Italy's quarterfinal against the Republic of Ireland. And up on the big screen, they had the penalty shootout between Argentina and Yugoslavia when the great Diego Maradona kind of popped his penalty straight at the Yugoslav keeper. Um, and I'd missed the Brazil-Argentina game because I'd been on a bus coming north from Naples and I just decided at that point, well, it's great to go to a World Cup, but the problem when you go to a World Cup, unless you're Infantinio, who seems to pop up at every match, uh, if you go if you go to a World Cup, you're going to miss games. So I decided I just can't miss games. So uh, from 1994 USA onwards, um, I've watched every game at every tournament. Um, it's just the kind of thing you do um, if you haven't got a life. Brilliant.
1: I think it's magnificent. And you know haven't. that. Oh, oh <laughs> that
4: was going to be my question, Ewan, is that you actually didn't think about going to Qatar. But, I mean, surely you've got to end the streak with going
0: to a World Cup, missing a few.
1: I reckon number 1,000 should be at, should be at a, a venue.
0: Oh, I'll be dead by then, Daniel. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, I might consider, you know, the USA, Mexico, Canada, next oh. World Cup. Um, i get past the 500 here and then maybe decide... Um, I'll actually go go to the tournament because that will be fantastic. The last World Brilliant. Cup host in the United States was a magnificent tournament, um, brilliantly supported by the Americans, and with Canada and Mexico tacked on in four years, that should be a fantastic tournament. So who knows? But look, these late nights, um, four four games every night. I mean, in the past it's normally been three. They've ramped it up to four. It's re- it is tough going. But having said that, the football has just been tremendous. I mean, people ask me, do you ever fall asleep? But I think the more pertinent question is, how can you sleep uh, with the kind of football that we've been watching in the last um, 12 days or so?
4: Yeah, Ewan, um, before we get on to the tournament itself, because, yeah, it has been absolutely fantastic, and I don't think anyone's been able to pick what's what's happened, but are you going to hand the mantle over to someone to take over your legacy of, of watching every World Cup game?
0: Um, I haven't got anyone in mind. Maybe you, Grant. Um, you're looking for something to do in life, aren't you? Um, <laughs> he doesn't def- have the
1: attention span for it, mate. He does, he'll be... He'll, oh, there's too much Instagramming in <laughs> <Yeah>. and... <laughs> Well, you no, know, there must be someone that's doing this.
4: Same thing as you, you and that's watching this football, and maybe not as intensely as you are.
1: 191 games. It's, it's amazing. It's
4: unbelievable. Yeah. And you get, to, you get to that 500th game, I think that you need to find someone who's says, right, and you hand it over. He at needs that to find someone. Live right? game at USA. You hand over the mantle, right, it's over to you. He
1: needs to find to someone. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I, and Ewan has a rule. You can't really ask him of how does the, the tournament rate until at least two or three months after a tournament. Am I right in thinking that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've got to, I've got to you know, let the whole tournament absorb itself into my thinking before I can make a, a decision. And also, one thing that really annoys me, and I know because I've worked with Daniel before around World Cups, he knows this, you do not ask me who's going to win. Um, yeah, that's yeah, the question no. that everybody asks me. Because A, I don't know, and B, I don't want to know because I don't want the tournament to end. It's about the journey, not the destination. And so when it comes to decide who the world champion is, it's quite a depressing day for me because it means I've got another four years to wait for the next World Cup.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and I feel like that today because I I, I finished my involvement at the, the World Cup today and I felt a bit flat when Grant walked into the studio. You're like, you okay? And I'm like... No, oh, I commentated my last game today, so it's, I, I, I share some similarity with you. And today, but I would like to know, you know, how you know, throw me some words to describe what you have seen over these last group games. It's been extraordinary drama, so many twists and turns. Whether it was Japan and Costa Rica of all countries for that ten minute, maybe a five, 10-minute slice. Where Germany and Spain were going to get knocked out at the group stage, how do you describe what you've seen? Maybe over the last few days, as we finally got it down to sixteen.
0: I think the, the word I choose is unbelievable. Um, it's just been incredible, and um, I loved. I watched the Costa Rica Germany game, and I just love the commentator. He said, um, uh, "He said if a spaceship landed in the centre circle, now um, nobody had bat an eyelid." Because it was just uh, at at that point, that was when Costa Rica, uh, you know, were qualifying with Japan and Germany and Spain were on their way out. Uh, And you look at that group, uh, when it came out, you know, that Group E, you looked at it, it was the group that kind of everyone salivated over because it had two of the giants of the game in it. And you kind of felt for Japan and Costa Rica. But <laughs> incredible, isn't it, that Japan have topped the group and Germany going home. Uh, and just it just carried on. I think we, we had the drama of South Korea again this morning and we almost got it in the last round of matches too. Um, you know, if Switzerland had got an extra goal or Serbia got a goal, it would have changed the mechanics of that group totally. Um, it's just been phenomenal. I mean, there is. This is the first World Cup since 1994 that there hasn't been one team that have won all three of their games. Uh, and in 1994, there were only six groups, and so this is the first eight group World Cup where nobody's got a hundred percent record. And I think that really encapsulates the tournament. Nobody's been able to really get a grip on things and and show their class. There have been glimpses of class by the expected um suspects teams like Spain and Brazil have given us glimpses um, but nobody's really uh in even England as well you know they had that very flat performance against the United States, so nobody's really got a grip on things so it just leaves the whole thing up in the air in terms of what's going to happen now you know because we now go into genuine knockout football we've had knockout football effectively uh for the last Uh, three or four nights, but it's genuine knockout stuff, and nobody's got a clue what's going to happen really, because the big guns are are all wobbling a little bit, and you've got sides like Morocco and Japan, and even South Korea, Australia, you know, they could bowl somebody else uh, at some point, so this could just carry on, and I hope it does. One of the great things for me about the World Cup is I'm a, a neutral, so... I can just enjoy. I hate it when anybody's knocked out because it's so sad. I was just felt so much for Uruguay this morning because they're one of my favourites. But as Daniel will know, I'm a big Italian fan, so the Italians, of course, didn't qualify, so I don't have to worry about it. So it's just about sitting back and enjoying it for me and, and it's turned up, turned up trumps in that respect. Uh, Ewan, you... Uh...
4: What does this tell us about world football? Does it mean that, you know, it's not like test cricket where there's only three nations that are head and shoulders above everyone else? Um, Does it mean that everyone's getting closer to, um, you know, I guess the the superpowers of football when you see someone like Germany getting knocked out?
0: Yeah, very much so. Um, I think the gap's been closing for probably the last 20 years or so. We had a World Cup in 2002 where uh, teams like South Korea and Japan and the United States all shone. And that was a bit of a wake-up call because the big guns had dominated. Um, and in the last 20 years, that gaps continue to close. And I think you've just got to look at the make at, at the makeup of the last 16, uh, eight European sides. You kind of expect that. Uh, but just two from South America and three from Asia. I mean, what kind of odds would you have got three Asian teams, Japan, South Korea mm. and Australia, what odds would you have got on more Asian teams in the last uh, 16 than South American sides? You've got the United States there from the North American uh, Confederation, you've got two African sides, so you've got a real mixture there. I think mm. we need to just draw a breath here and I think one of the big guns will still come through. We've only had you know nine world champions in the history of the World Cup and but even though the likes of Italy, Germany, Uruguay have all gone. Uh, I think that, you know, France, Brazil, Argentina and England are still in Spain. They're kind of the big five and they've all been world champions before. And there's, there is, you know, I would still fancy one of them to come through in the end, but it's this, uh, the, 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 there's no question the gaps are closing. Hold
1: on, Grant, I have a sneaking suspicion. You were just about to ask Ewan a question about who's going to win a game. He told you. You don't you don't talk to him about who's going to win games or win the tournament itself. You ask questions like this. Ewan, what what manager or player has won your heart with their antics, their shithousery whatever it might be, uh throughout the group stage of this tournament?
0: Uh well I think the Saudi Arabian goalkeeper who took out his defender. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean that was just that That was one of the great moments of the World Cup. But look, my absolute (laughs) hero of this World Cup is Paulo Bento, the um, Portuguese coach of South Korea. I don't know if you saw this morning, but um, he got a red card the other day, which meant he had to sit in the stand uh, for this morning's game. And he actually got told off by the spectators around him because he was standing up all the time. Um, You know, they were telling him to sit down. And this, this... This guy, there's always a a complete nutter, uh, a manager who's a complete nutter, and this guy, Paolo Bento of South Korea, um, he's the nutter. And I think that uh, just fantastic South Korea got through in the end because it means we're going to see more of him. He's going to be back down on the bench um, for their match against Brazil. Um, So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, In terms of players, um, uh, there's been... um, the, the the bull chap from Morocco, um, uh, sorry, from Tunisia, Kasri, is it? Um, yeah, so Kasri, yeah. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah, yeah, he's been absolutely fabulous. So, always a huge smile on his face. And of course, Bentacour from, um, have I got his name right? No, not Bentekur, yeah. uh, the, the, Mor- the Cameroonian striker who did the little lob against well, I- Serbia. Um, Oh, Abubakar,
1: who got sent off (laughs) today. Abubakar, who scored (laughs) against Brazil, they win, takes his shirt off, Grant, and got sent off. (laughs) That was the second yellow card. Just the second red card of the tournament came from a guy celebrating too much. Brilliant. Taking his shirt off. That's just brilliant, isn't it, Ewan? Oh, it's
0: fantastic. In the World Cup, they always throw up these little treasures. Treasures, uh, But it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, we've got the kind of older brigade there, haven't we? Um, the last dance for the likes of Luca Modric, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi. And great to see Danny Alves out there this morning, 39 years old for Brazil. Pepe, 39 for Portugal. So it's not a, not all a young man's sport. Um, but, you know, of the, the greats, Modric, Messi... Uh, Ronaldo, who's going to come out on top? That's the big question uh, at the end of the day. Will it be Lionel Messi? Will he finally put to bed that thing that he hasn't won a, a World Cup? Yeah, he'll be on the Pantheon with Diego Maradona if he can do it. Uh, Ronaldo, I think he's a little bit past his best, but the guy's still capable of producing something, something special. And we all, as we all know, he's a big occasion player, so there might be still a little bit of magic in in his box of tricks. But, yeah, it's, it's a fabulous tournament. There's always great characters at the World Cup. There's always passion. Uh, there's always emotion. There's always color. Uh, and there's always controversy, too. Great to see a bit of genuine controversy yesterday or, or the day before with the ball that went out. Um, you know, the Spanish that led, led to Japan's second goal, um, I think I don't think that VAR person will be uh, making any trips to to Germany in the next um, in the next <laughs> couple of years. So um, it's just this is just the World Cup. This is why it's the greatest sporting event in the world, and why football is the greatest sport. And also the supporters. I mean, the noise in those stadiums has just been phenomenal. Japan. One of the reasons they've progressed. A bit Fifty thousand supporters—they <laughs> just don't let wow. up. They—they they, they, they make incredible noise from start to finish. Uh, of course, being an Arab World Cup, the North African countries and the Middle Eastern countries have had phenomenal support, and of course, the Argentinians are sensing something. So they've travelled in huge numbers, and they, they're just—you the, know—the passion and the colour. That's what I love about it so much.
4: Hey, Ewan, I'm not going to ask you who's going to win the World Cup. But what I am going to ask you, because we've got something at the end of the show, it's called, it's, it used to be called Punts You Should Run a Mile From, but we've become really good at it because we use expert knowledge on the show. Thomas Waldrum said to us two weeks ago, he said the All Blacks versus England was going to be a draw, and that's what I picked, and it was a draw. So I want to wow. use our expert knowledge. And of the rank outsiders in the World Cup at the moment. And I say rank, so that's anyone from $31 up to Australia, $201 to one. Who do you think's got a chance there? So that's, that's
1: Croatia, Switzerland, Japan, Morocco, USA, Senegal, Poland, South Korea, Australia.
0: Yeah. Okay, out of those ones, I fancy Japan and Morocco because they are so well-organized. Um yeah. They're, they're disciplined, they're organized, and they're brilliantly managed. So they're the two that stand out for me. That game between Morocco and Spain looks very tasty um, because I think the Spanish had real difficulty breaking down that Japanese defense. And I think they might find it's the same against Morocco. And, of course, Japan, they're the darlings of the tournament, aren't they? I mean, any neutral would just want to see them go on and on. I think the stars of the tournament, actually, Daniel asked me before, those Japanese substitutes, they've been running up and down that sideline when they scored those two goals against Germany and then at the end against Germany, then running up and down the sideline when they scored those goals against uh, Spain. They even got to run up the sideline twice because the VA, the second goal went to VAR. And
2: oh, then they ran
0: up, up the sideline at the end of the game, I mean. Those, we, I want to see more of those Japanese substitutes celebrating. And I want to see stuff. more of, um, of, of, our, um, of the South Korean manager too.
1: <laughs> Mr. Bento. Mr. McCabe, thanks so much for dropping by, my friend. I know sleep is a priceless commodity for you at the moment. Go get some. You've got another uh, um, big couple of days ahead. Uh, only two games tomorrow. It gets a little bit easier from here on in. Netherlands, USA, Argentina, Australia – for game number 492 and 93, uh, and raise your bat when you hit 500, my friend. It's uh, it's a hell of an achievement.
4: Thank you, Ewan.
0: Okay, thank you, Grant. I'll see you at the base in the summer. <laughs> see you there, brother.
1: It's uh, Ewan McKay, the World Cup baby author and uh, World Cup football super fan. Yeah, super fan. If you've got a streak of watching 491 uh, World Cup games consecutively without missing them, that, that's watching the whole game, not the highlights. Not a little five-minute highlights package. Does he watch the up? Yeah. <laughs> does he? That's so good. <laughs> of course he does. Incredible. But to our listeners, to 1990. just
4: quietly there, he's said of, of the rank
1: outsiders, Japan and Morocco, they're both at $81. Surely they can't win it all. Surely they can't win it all. We must take a break. We're going to head to Pukakoe and another race. Race number two in, um, well, just a few minutes' time. Stay with us. race That was at Pukakoe. It is very tight. Just couldn't get tighter. Because right now it's a photo for first, second, and third. First, second, and third photo. Uh, eagle Eye Grant Elliott is uh, staring. Staring like a hawk looking for prey. Have you got money on anything? Oh, number seven is just
4: flying through there. That would be a oh, great outside. race if number seven, seven gets up. Seven, twelve, 12, and I just can't see the inside number. Oh, it has to be seven. Mm. Seven twelve and famous famous on the last inside. words mate.
1: like uh, you know the Japanese ball crossing the line yesterday against uh,
4: has to be number seven in Spain. It just it was it ran a great race. Number seven came from the outside, three horses from the outside, and probably about at least two lengths behind. Just to cross that line. But my workhorse of the week. Yeah,
1: in association lo- with the uh, minor Egratars, what sporting team or individual has been working the land grant to impress you? Well,
4: last week I told you about the Japanese fans. I said, you know, they're the workhorse of the week. They were cleaning up the stands. There was photos of uh, the change room of the Japanese football players. I've seen change rooms being left, how some teams leave them behind. Just like Someone will. Pick it all up, but somewhere lower than me. Yeah. the food chain will pick up my mess. And we've we've heard Richie McCaw saying, sweep the sheds. Well, the Japanese fans for me last week, but this week it'll be the Japanese players, the team. Uh, they become only the third team in World Cup history to be losing at half time and come back to win two matches at the same tournament. Um, the last team to do that was Brazil in 1938, and then wow. West Germany in 1970. Wow. Did it in memorable style. So we just heard here that Ewan McCabe, World Cup baby, he said, of all the outsiders, he fancies Morocco and Japan just because they're organised. They, they're at $81. He's
1: Japan. fallen in love with Japan and rightly so. Uh, incredible achievement to beat Germany and Spain coming from behind in both games. It's a great shout for the Midas agri Workhorse of the Week. You're going to finish with no, let's, let's be nice. It's all about Japan. A minus agritise made in Europe and trusted by leading equipment manufacturers worldwide. European quality doesn't have to break the bank. Ask for minus agritise for your equipment. Uh, on the other side of the break, um, sporting tips you should run a mile from, and um, why I want to uh, have dinner with Tom Hicks. minutes away from one o'clock, uh, Grant Elliott. Uh, who would you invite to dinner? Answer your own question. Keith Miller.
4: Keith Miller, pretty. I told the listeners early on Keith yeah, Miller. Sorry. And right. the reason why. I wasn't here. Um, should I
1: repeat the reason why if you've no, just tuned in? Because I've heard about Keith Miller. What a man. Uh, someone agrees with you here. Uh, dinner shortly with sh- uh, Shane keith Warren um, It would be interesting. Failing that Keith Miller. 100% not Bradman. Great player. Not sure about the person. Oh, that was Unnamed uh, Texter. Um, and Jason from the other side of the ditch. Um, Right, Daniel Grant. I think Brazil will make the World Cup final, and I would like to have a meal with Ross Taylor, Robin Brook, and Stacey Jones. Greedy, getting three over. Like that, Jason. (laughs) Smorgasbord of guests. Who did Uh, did you
4: have? Tom
1: Hicks. (laughs) Tom Hicks, Hicks. I would invite to dinner. Who's Tom Hicks? He won the 1904 marathon in St. Louis. A marathon that was raced in uh, temperatures that reached 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, uh, Described by one fair official as the most difficult a human being has ever been asked to run. Um, uh, There were seven hills varied from 100 to 300 feet uh, inclines, brutally long ascents. In many places, uh, cracked stone was strewn across the roadway, uh, creating perilous footing. The men had to constantly dodge cross-town traffic. Yes, they had to run through traffic, (laughs) delivery wagons, railroad trains, trolley cars, And people walking their dogs. In fact, some competitors got attacked by dogs. Um, There were only two places where athletes could secure fresh drinking water. Um, There was also uh, massive amounts of dust in the environment, um, which uh, created um, a number of problems for people breathing. Uh, Yeah, there was huge problems, including William Garcia of California nearly became the first fatality in an Olympic marathon when he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging. The dust had um, had sort of clogged his uh, esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. But Hicks was one of the early favorites. Now, he came under the care of a two-man support crew crew with 10 miles uh, gone. He begged for them uh, for a drink, but his team refused him a drink. Didn't trust the water. Oh, nice. Instead, sponging his mouth with warm, distilled water in a marathon. Mmm, this is nice, isn't it? <laughs> Seven miles from the finish, his handlers fed him a concoction of strychnine and egg whites, the first recorded instance of drug use at a, uh, a modern Olympics. Um It's a stimulant, strychnine, in small doses. There was no um, rules around performance-enhancing drugs in those days. You know, better living via chemistry. Uh, Hicks' uh, team also carried a flask of French brandy, but decided to withhold it until they could gauge his condition. (laughs) It was after they doped him, of course. Uh, Hicks, um, you know, strychnine cursing through his blood, had grown um, ashen and limp. And when he heard that uh, someone had been disqualified in front of him because he'd been bitten by a dog, that perked up his. Um, <laughs> that, that perked him up. Yeah, a, yeah, The guy leading the race was attacked by a dog. <laughs> anyway, he began to hallucinate. Beginning the finish line was still twenty miles away, and in the last mile, begged for someone uh, and something to eat. He then begged to lie down. He was given more brandy, or given some brandy, uh, but refused tea. They offered him a, a cup of tea. He swallowed. Two more egg whites, um, and walked up the first of the last two hills, then jogged down the incline, uh, swinging into the stadium. He tried to run, but was reduced to a graceless shuffle. His trainers carried him over the line. They carried him over the line to win the Olympic marathon, holding him aloft while his feet moved back and forward. And he was declared the winner. Tom Hicks is being invited to dinner. He might not remember anything about it, but it is wow. the single greatest race in sporting history. No doubt about it. The 1904 Marathon is the greatest race for its absolute absurdity, chaos, carnage. Why is there not a movie about this? There's a, there's a movie in there. Why. I don't know there's why. There's rabid dogs. Tom Hicks, I can't wait to have you over for dinner. Brilliant. Well, I will give you strychnine. <laughs> and, and eggs for any egg way you want uh, my uh, sporting tips you should run a mile from let's finish off you like Tom hey? you think that's a good yeah, show uh, don't, uh, that's what a great good. race uh, I've got Poland beating uh, France in a penalty shootout paying $21 oh wow I'm, I'm sticking my neck out that was my call yesterday on the Brecky Show there's Brilliant. always a game where someone ruins the party at a World Cup and via yeah. penalty shootout and Poland have been dire um, what, I've also yeah. got um, Argentina going through against uh, our mates from across the ditch, but Australia to score. So Argentina to win, but both teams to score 375. What have you got, mm. Grant? Well,
4: I can't beat that. I, I I like long odds. I mean, I guess the only long odds I've got is if you want to listen to you and but I asked him for Rank Outsiders Japan at $81 to win it. You might want to put a sneaky one on there, but at the moment, I'm going to go with something relevant. So... I believe that you've got the World Test Championships, and uh, England are sitting now at sixth. They need to win Test matches. Therefore, they're going to declare and make a game of it. They've
1: got quite a bold captain and coach you might have seen in the media.
4: You would say that they are on the aggressive side. So there will be a declaration, and I'm going to say that Pakistan's Zindabad. Oh! It's at $13 at the moment. Oh! So that's not, I think it should be steeper odds than that. So a bad declaration. Well, sort of feel like Pakistan might get 400 and then England will bat and then declare and give them something to chase. 380 on the last day on yeah, that I road. don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Let's, let's have a look. They're losing light as well, so they will lose time in the test matches. So there's time already taken out of it. Um, so watch that with fascination. Let's see if there might be a result. The draw only gives you $1.24. And England are at four sixty five. So yeah, that's think...
1: far too prudent. It's probably the smart play, but not the grant. Elliot Way, Ben Francis, and thirty <laughs> seconds or less. Do you have one for us?
3: I do not, because yeah, I, I haven't had time to look.
1: Okay, just all week.
3: Yeah, all week.
1: Yeah, just all week. Not enough time. No, not enough time. I've, ha- ha- I've had, I've
3: had to be, I've had been babysitting Grant. That's that's a lot of work.
1: But, oh... oh. That's not true. He's not that bad, is he? Come here,
4: buddy. Daniel McCarty, flatter than a Raul Pindi. Wicked at the moment. He's going to get some well-needed rest.
1: I've had some strychnine and some eggs, and I'm ready to go. Let's go, baby. Get
4: you some brandy and just roll you down the hill home.
1: The good oil's up next. Have great fun, team. Take it easy. See you next week.